Welcome to Triple Threat Theater. Triple Threat Theater. Triple Threat Theater. However, I believe there is a more immediate threat. Thousands and thousands of feet of film consumed. Hours and hours of work expended by technicians. And once it's been erased and shredded, it can be done all over again. As all of you know, I've devoted much of my life to convincing the world that travel through film was not only possible, but necessary to survive. Come out to Triple Threat Theater. We'll have a few laughs. It's episode 57, and my name is Ryan Miller. I'm Joe Daxberger. <laughs> he does it again. <laughs> That was good. Oh, thank you. <laughs> Maybe because I've got this little cough, my voice is a little raspier and more Bruce Willisy. Well, there you go. <laughs> Silver lining to every cloud. Mm-hmm. If you couldn't guess from that introduction and the title to this episode, Bruce to the Future, we're going to be talking Bruce Willis. How could you do this to us? How am I supposed to pick a loser <laughs> out of three five-star movies? Daxi's choice. Good grief. I know. When uh when I started watching these movies, I was thinking the same thing. Like, oh man, how am I gonna how am I gonna choose? Okay. I'm still not a hundred percent sure how I'm gonna go. Maybe the conversation we're about mm-hmm. to have will help. Mm-hmm. But uh we're talking three Bruce Willis sci-fi films to be sure. There's time travel involved in two of them. One of them just takes place in the far future. So, Bruce to the Future, it works, I think. Oh, for sure. From 1995, we're going to be talking 12 Monkeys. From 1997, we're going to be talking The Fifth Element. And from 2012, we're going to be talking Looper. And like you insinuated, I love all of these movies. (laughs) Like, this isn't like, oh, I like, I enjoy, I love these three movies. Yeah, I'm pretty much on the same page with you there. I think. The, the three of them I've loved as soon as I saw them. I've been a fan <laughs> ever since. I mean, Looper I definitely saw in the theater. The other two I just can't remember, but there's a good chance I did. Just, you know, those are my formative teen years. I could have very well have seen these at the time. Mm-hmm. I mean, I've always been a Bruce Willis fan, period. He's clearly... Back then, for sure, well, even recently, not afraid of doing sci-fi movies, which will always have, you know, a spot in my heart for anyone that was a repeat offender. That's something we're going to have to talk about as we go through these, because, you know, Bruce Willis, well, first off, I mean, he's been in a billion movies, but as I was watching these and just like in rapid succession and thinking like how great I think all of them are. Mm hmm. And then he's obviously done like some other like really noteworthy kind of touchstone movies. Off the top of your head, is there another actor that you can think of who's been in as many like touchstone like major movies that you're a big fan of as as Bruce Willis? Because Um, let's let's talk like he's again he's done a ton of movies, but let's just talk the big ones here. Die Hard in '88. You know, Die Hard 2. He was in big stuff like Look Who's Talking, which was popular back then. Yep. Huge movie. Yeah. And then stuff like Not As Big, but Last Boy Scout is good. Mm -hmm. Death Becomes Her is a movie that I really like. That's like a kind of crazy, kind of sci-fi, fantasy, adventure, kind of weird, dark humor movie. Never seen it. 
Oh man, we write that down. <laughs> That's got to yeah. get into a lineup if it's not already. We'll I definitely think down. you'll be a fan of that movie. And then you know more action stuff like Striking Distance. Then all of a sudden, 1994 Pulp Fiction, mm-hmm. huge. I mean, culturally impactful, great movie. You know, Bruce Willis was probably pretty big at the time. Like, could have done just about anything, but then he ends up in. Like, like, how does a guy like him end up in a role like that in that movie, right? Right. Uh, and then, you know, Die Hard with a Vengeance comes along. Then 12 Monkeys, which we'll talk about, was like a, a very successful movie when it came out. But, you know, from a studio standpoint and everything, it was a risk. Again, we'll talk more about that. Mm-hmm. Then two years later, The Fifth Element, very similar circumstances. Very popular movie, uh, did well at the box office, but also very strange and a big risk for the studios. Uh, and then stuff like The Jackal, Mercury Rising, then Armageddon, you know, like it or Jeez. lump it, that was a big fucking deal at the time when it came out. Oh, yeah. That movie was huge. It's like one of the biggest movies of that year. It gotta be. It has to be. Yeah, 1998. Then I feel like, well, no, I was going to say it falls off a little, but then... What, two, the next year, the Sixth Sense. I was just going to say Sixth Sense. Where is that coming? Because that cultural talk about phenomenon, cultural phenomenon, different from most of the other things on the list so far. Mm-hmm. Uh, some comedies and things. Unbreakable, another like great movie that feels like something that you wouldn't necessarily expect, like big action star movie star guy to be in. Yep. And then maybe it falls off a little. He's in stuff like Hearts War, Tears of the Sun. Um, he does the whole nine, whole 10 yards movies, mm-hmm. Sin City, you know, Huge. pretty, pretty noteworthy. That was, that was big at the time for sure. Mm-hmm. He had kind of a small part in it, but, uh, but then everybody did cause it was yeah. almost like an anthology film mm-hmm. and stuff like Lucky Number Slevin, 16 Blocks. Uh, he's in Grindhouse. Yep. In Planet Terror. Um, love him. Some mm. diehard later sequels that aren't very good. Still doing sci-fi stuff like The Surrogates, even though it's not a great movie. Nope. Better comic. Oh, I've never actually read the comic. Yeah, I have. Cop Out, not a good movie, but Ooh. again, kind of like a weird choice for him to mm-hmm. just like be in a Kevin Smith movie. Yeah. Uh, little stuff in Expendables. He's getting older now. He's in Red. Mm-hmm. And then we come up on Looper. And, uh, you know, Sin City sequel stuff like that, he, he starts to do a lot of, like, made-for-TV kind of stuff at this, or, or like, direct-to-video kind of stuff at this point. But, you know, still here and there, big movies like Death Wish or Glass. But just, like, that's a hell of a career with some really noteworthy, diverse Huge. kind of touchstone movies. Yeah, I mean, your initial question, like, thinking of someone else, like, I have a hard time, like, the the only thing that like comes to mind but is not on the same level is like Kurt Russell, you know. But mm. again, not on like the kind of smash success, like huge properties kind of coverage mm. that Bruce Willis has. Yeah, I'm thinking he belongs in a camp of like like a Tom Hanks or Denzel Washington potentially. But I don't even know if the two of them have as many like big movies important to me because they haven't done as much genre stuff as right. uh, mm-hmm. as Bruce Willis. I feel like he also, you know, he is one of those 80s action guys, even though he came with the action at the tail end of the 80s. So he's synonymous right. with like the Schwarzeneggers and the Stallones. It's just interesting how he's walked in so many different territories. I mean, he got started out in comedy stuff with Moonlighting mm-hmm. and continued to do comedy stuff like The Whole Nine Yards and Look Who's Talking and whatnot throughout his career while being known as like the badass action star. 
It's just when you stop and look at his filmography and then stuff like Pulp Fiction pops up in there, it's just it's pretty wild. He's like a the bona fide like movie star. It seems like just like going off that filmography, he seems like an actor that people would like always hope they could get. And these are just examples of like the times people could get him. Yeah. And like having such a career that he could like probably pick and choose. Mm-hmm. For sure. But then you get into instances like cop out, right? So mm-hmm. Kevin Smith had like a cameo role in the fourth Die Hard movie, which is where they met. And I'm sure that that's how he ended up doing that movie with Kevin Smith because he kind of knew him and they probably became buddies. But then to hear Kevin Smith talk about it, Bruce Willis was hard to work with and mm-hmm. like the experience of making Cop Out was like horrible for him. And Bruce Willis, especially as he gets older and the kinds of roles he's playing, it looks like he's... Always just like, it's like he's typecast himself. Like, it seems like he largely only accepts certain kind of roles these days where he doesn't have to look different or do anything aside from just scowl at people. And -hmm. it gives off this feeling of like, he's kind of hard edged, like maybe he's a bit of an asshole. And completely coincidentally, as we're about to do this Bruce Willis episode, I just got done recently listening to a podcast series put out by Turner Classic Movies about the making of... uh, Brian De Palma's movie, The Bonfire of the Vanities, mm-hmm. which at the time when I listened to the podcast, I hadn't seen it. I have since watched the movie after listening to the podcast. And it's the entire show is hosted by a woman who was a reporter and a film critic who was friends with Brian De Palma and was allowed to be on the set during the entire filming and then wrote a book about the, the making of the movie. And that movie was like a huge flop despite the fact that it was based on like an extremely popular book at the time, but Bruce Willis is in the movie and the way she talks about Bruce Willis, you know, he was like very short with people. And whereas Tom Hanks, who was also in that movie was like friendly with everybody on set and would play cards with like the crew in between shots. But apparently like Bruce Willis had a bodyguard with him basically just to keep people from interacting with him. Mm. And um, like after she wrote her book and like talked frankly about her experience with him on set, uh, he in the press like made some really nasty comments about her and it makes it feel like, He's some kind of like curmudgeonly, I don't know, just like money grubbing, self-centered asshole. But Mm. then I don't want to reveal it all now, but we'll talk about it as we go through talking about these movies. It actually seems like he's really like smart about the projects that he chooses a lot of the time. I won't say always. (laughs) And um, really open to trying things and being experimental which I would say the movies we're about to talk about, especially the first two, really, uh, they really get that idea across. Mm-hmm. Which, I don't know, it it's interesting that he seems like a man of two worlds almost. Yeah, it's, you know, as you're kind of describing it, it almost starts to feel like, oh man, this is, would he be one of those like, don't meet your hero kind of things? Because like, maybe he really is like a cold. yeah. A cold a-hole, but... That's the kind of way I got the impression that Kevin Smith felt after making a movie with him. Mm-hmm. It's cop-out, but, you know. He, but he also, you know, it's like, you never know. He's been around so long mm-hmm. and has seen, like, so many eras of, you know, every decade in Hollywood is vastly different than the last one. He's been around for, yeah, I mean, four-plus decades, really. Mm-hmm. You know? But even that um, that attitude that I'm talking about that uh, it seems like he kind of had on set, uh, there was a very specific story in that um, the 
the Turner Classic Movies podcast, I would recommend it. It's called The Plot Thickens, and they do it in seasons. The second season was titled The Devil's Candy, and that's the one that's about uh, the making of Bonfire of the Vanities. And the woman who hosts it talks about a specific scene in the movie where Bruce Willis having come from a comedy background, and this was 1990, the movie came out, so it wasn't too far removed from his time on Moonlighting. Brian De Palma was directing the scene that was supposed to have like a comedy timing to it. And Bruce Willis, according to her, instead of going to Brian De Palma to make a suggestion, uh, he just started like telling the cast and crew what to do, which like really caused a problem between him and Brian De Palma. And then uh, watching after I watched 12 Monkeys this time around, I have the Arrow Video like special edition Blu-ray that has an hour and a half long documentary like fly on the wall doc that was made during the mm. filming of 12 mm-hmm. Monkeys, which was awesome, by the way. And I think I've seen that. Yeah. It's called like the hamster factor or something. But um, there's like a sequence in that where even Bruce will like the part in 12 Monkeys where... Bruce Willis has just been at the fancy party and he comes back to the car and he's locked uh, Madeline Stowe's character in the trunk and Mm -hmm. she like kicks him and then beats him up. And there's like a part in the documentary where you can see Bruce Willis like very forcefully arguing with um, Terry Gilliam and telling him he thinks that like what they're doing is wrong. And like, even if she kicked me six times, like I wouldn't even feel it because, you know, I'm, I'm like manly guy and she's like, you know, unlike scary woman or whatever Mm. and just like the vibe on the set there like i can imagine where kevin smith would have clashed with him if Mm -hmm. they had like it feels like bruce willis kind of knows what he wants and and thinks he knows best right which is why it's weird to me that it's like he'll take so many risks and work with so many different interesting people on all these different movies but at the same time it feels like he has this weird self-entitled attitude about him but i i don't know that's just is that just he's, what makes he's him a Bruce movie star? fucking willis i know I mean, right yeah. like maybe that's what it is you know yeah it's just a an interesting dichotomy i just feel like between happening to listen to that podcast and then watching and reading all this stuff about bruce willis for this episode of the show i just feel mm-hmm. like i'm on bruce willis overdrive right now and i i feel like i can't quite figure out his deal <laughs> Man, you're just gonna have to go farther down the rabbit hole, I think. Yeah, maybe pull out all the all the making ofs and interviews you can get your hands on. <laughs> yeah. Quick quick sidebar. Mm-hmm. Bonfire of the Vanities. Yep. Would you recommend watching the movie first and then listening to the podcast? Or no. the opposite? I would do it the way I did it mm-hmm. because you know, the whole thing is just to give a, a brief history of this, uh, Bonfire of the Vanities was a book about like uh yuppie kind of wall street culture and it's like kind of a dark comedy and it came out at the end of the 80s and a lot of people still consider it to this day to be like the novel of the 80s that like captures that time period Mm -hmm. and um like the book was enormously popular but everyone was saying like oh it's like impossible to turn this into a movie and then brian de palma did it and the movie ended up being like a massive flop Partially, people think, because of some of the decisions they made that changed the book for the movie. And I found it fascinating to hear them describing this movie that I had not seen yet. And, like, it goes into super detail because the woman who hosts the podcast not only wrote the book on the movie, literally, but was there for the entire production. So she explains a lot of things in minute detail that then watching the movie, I could react to as like, oh, I know, I I remember them talking about the scene and then Mm. seeing how it plays out and how it's different from what she described. 
And I also do honestly think that while Brian De Palma, it has a good cast and Brian De Palma brings a lot of interesting style to the movie. And, you know, the story is pretty interesting, too. It is not a very good movie. So I think it, you know, if you watched the movie, you might not be as interested in listening to the podcast, mm-hmm. but the podcast is fascinating and the movie makes a nice like cherry on top to watch it after listening to it. Okay. So that's what I would recommend if you wanted to check it out. I, I am interested. Yeah. And if you're into like movies and stuff, then you will have no problem getting into the podcast with that. Like I didn't know anything about the Bonfire of the Vanities when I listen to the show. I could have told you that it was a movie and that's it. I didn't know that Brian De Palma directed it. I didn't know who was in it or that it was a huge book or whatever. Cause I was like kind of before my time, but mm-hmm. so. All right. All right. Yeah. It's a lot to unpack there, but um, I mean, I don't know if there's a whole lot else that needs to be said before we dive right in. You ready to go to I our mean, first movie? Bruce is the man. Let's hit it. <laughs> all right. So from 1995, we have 12 monkeys. Yo, go. Yo, Jeffrey! Jones! What? Hey, look here. This here's James. Now, do me a favor. Why don't you show him around? Tell him the TV rules. Show him the games and stuff, okay? How much you gonna pay me? How much? I'd be doing your job. $5,000, my man. That enough? $5,000? I'll wire check to your account as usual. $5,000. $5,000. $5,000. I'll give him the deluxe mineral. Hospital tool. My man. Uh, get around, get around, <laughs> make some feel good. Yeah, house. You're the prisoners. No, no you're no. the guards. Right, now you're you got it. Now right, you got right, it. Right, right. Okay, okay. It's all in good fun. All in good fun. Here's some games here. And there's Get out! Get out! He's in my chair. Games. Games. Here's some games. Games that want to get out. <clears throat> See? More games. Games, they vegetize you. See? Yeah. If you play the games, you're voluntarily taking a tranquilizer. I guess they give you some chemical restraints, huh? Drugs! What'd they give you? Thorazine? Haldol? How much? How much? Learn your drugs. Know your doses. It's elementary. I need to make a telephone call. Telephone call? A telephone call? That's communication with the outside world, doctors. Discretion. Huh? Nah. Uh, hey, all of these nuts could just make phone calls. They could spread insanity oozing through telephone cables oozing to the ears of all these poor, sane people, infecting them. Wackos everywhere, plague of madness. Come on, let's go. In fact, very few, very few of us here are actually mentally ill. I'm not saying you're not mentally ill. For all I know, you're crazy as a loon. But that's not why you're here. That's not why you're here. It's not why you're here. You're here because of the system. Great name. It's intriguing. Oh, yeah. It doesn't really give anything away. It's all contextual to the movie, but, you know, we'll definitely make an eyebrow or two raise. Mm-hmm. Do you have recollection of seeing this for the first time and or if you were a fan right away? I, yeah, like I said, but I was a all three fan, like, right away. Um, I really just don't remember if I saw this in the theater or not, but, like, you know, would you say it's 95? So I was 13. I mean, grew up watching movies, but when I was like hitting those teenagers, 12, 13, you know, really just like watching the things I want to watch, not just like what the family's watching or stuff like that. Like those are those like later formative years. Like I can remember like the first movie I saw by myself was The Crow. Like oh. the first time, like I went to the theater on my own type of thing. 
And like this, that was like all the kind of like mid nineties years. So, and I was just so, I was just so into like dark movies, sci-fi, like getting into that so heavy at the time that I can just, I can remember loving this movie Yeah, and like blowing my mind. And I've always, I mean, we, we will talk about it. We've talked about it in the past, how like how far down the rabbit hole we want to go on time travel things. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, you know, this is like one of those movies. It just, you know, asks so many questions. Mm-hmm. It just like looks great. The great, and I was, you know, I've always liked Bruce Willis, you know, going back to a kid, even like this is one of the first movies I think I saw Brad Pitt in. Yeah. So this was a big one. Like I, you know, I know True Romance is before this, which I had not seen. Um, I mean, even so, he's such a small role in that. I just mean like some things like people would say like, oh, that's the first or yeah, yeah. what's he in Thelma and Louise, I think, uh, mm-hmm. you know, stuff like that. But it was like seven, 12 monkeys. Like those are the first things I saw him in. So I can just remember loving the movie, but even like, and now even watching it again, I haven't watched it in a while, but seeing it again, like it's a weird movie. Mm-hmm. As it should well, be. It's a Terry Gilliam film. <laughs> well, that's the thing, too. It's like back then I can, you know, I can even remember just being young and be like, oh, this movie's weird, but not knowing why. And then mm-hmm. after being familiar with Terry Gilliam now and like seeing other things like Brazil and then when you watch 12 Monkeys, it's like. Wow, Tame this... compared to Brazil. <laughs> well, sure. But like <laughs> this looks like a Terry Gilliam movie. Yeah. Like some Especially of the Especially stuff... in the future stuff. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, even like just the. The one shot when he's talking to like the tribunal and it's like all those like TVs and like the set, you know, mm-hmm. that one scene like that's such like a Terry Gilliam thing. And then even all the I mean, there's just like so many Dutch angles in this movie. <laughs> the like this kind of like a fisheye lens kind of thing that goes on a lot too. a lot of close ups with I'm not exactly sure what kind of lens you'd call it, but yeah, it, it's not exactly a fisheye. It's but not it's exactly, like... but it's something that. It's something that when when filming an actor close up, it makes the widescreen feel extra wide. I don't yeah. I don't really know how to describe it. Right. But there's a lot of shots of like confused and or drugged up time travel, addled <laughs> right. brain Bruce Willis, uh-huh. where it just like closes in on his face as he's looking around frantically, and, mm-hmm. and it's the, just the, like, what is what is this camera yeah. angle? Yeah, the camera angle. Then it will change like a lot of like movement of the camera mm-hmm. without cuts, like. I'm by no means like a Terry Gilliam like expert, but it just feels now I can like say as an adult, like, God damn, like what a crazy movie. And it's like what I thought was weird was just like his stamp on this movie, mm-hmm. which I love. I'm fairly positive that I would have seen uh, Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas before this, which is another Gilliam. Oh, is it? I didn't mm-hmm. even know that. Yep. Okay. That was maybe the movie he did after this. Yeah, I'm pretty sure that I saw stuff like Seven and Fight Club before I saw 12 Monkeys. I don't think I saw this until like early 2000s. So this is probably like the fourth time I've seen it. And it's one of those movies that while I remember the broad strokes, like Bruce Willis watches himself die as a kid, like Mm -hmm. when he's an adult, um, that kind of stuff. And, you know... uh, Brad Pitt plays like a mental patient and all and these kind of things. It's a movie that it's so dense and crazy that I lose like 97% of the plot and the premise in between viewings. <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, so I remember 
I watched this last time about two years ago, right when I got the Arrow Blu-ray that I talked about. And I had that experience again of remembering like so little about it because it had been a good number of years since I'd seen it. And then it was actually nice having just watched it a couple of years ago. I, I would say I still had about 50% of the movie hmm. left in my brain this time. Mm-hmm. So uh, like the gaps got filled in quicker and I almost have that feeling of I understood the movie better this time than I ever have before. That by no means is to say that uh, I fully understand everything about it, but uh, I think I have a pretty yeah. good grasp. Yeah. And I even feel like I liked it more this time around, oh. just maybe because of that. But uh, I've always liked this movie. And the thing that I have really felt last time I watched it, and again this time, and I think it's again because all the stuff that Bruce Willis does nowadays, for the most part, he feels so like, dull and samey and he always just like looks the same and acts the same like I was talking about like he's just mm-hmm. you know running through the paces I feel like this like watching this movie and some of the others we're going to talk about is almost like a revelation of just how fucking good he used to be mm. like he's you know he's taking chances in this he's being like emotionally fragile and oh yeah just even as I'm watching it this time, I'm like, God, there's a lot of like nudity and near nudity with him in this movie. Just it's like he's putting himself a hundred percent in the hands of a very eccentric filmmaker. And again, taking a big chance on a movie that, you know, this movie has a weird concept. And it's made by Terry Gilliam, who like one of the interesting backstories behind this movie is that uh, he had made Brazil with Universal and classically the studio like took over the edit and uh, changed the ending of Brazil to make it a happy ending because they didn't like his original ending. Mm -hmm. And Terry Gilliam didn't have any control over that decision, but took out a full page ad in a newspaper, basically (laughs) calling them out and saying, hey, when are you going to release my version of the movie? And then he held like a bunch of uh, illegal screenings with a copy of the film he had. And uh, it ended up getting so much positive buzz from his screenings that the studio then reneged and released his version but obviously a scenario like that would leave a bad taste in the studio's mouth having worked with him plus he's eccentric anyway when they decided to make this movie he basically fought and said look i want final cut otherwise i'm not doing it and they agreed but they gave him very specific stipulations of you have to do it in this amount of time and under this budget and it can't be longer than like this length and Hmm. um Like all those stipulations feel like something that someone like Bruce Willis would maybe want to steer clear of, but he actually took a pay cut to be in this movie because he wanted to work with Terry Gilliam and like believed in the project that much. That's cool. I know that like, that's the kind of thing I keep seeing come up as I read about these movies with Bruce Willis that makes me like, I don't know. I go the other way. Like he, by some accounts, he sounds like kind of a, diva asshole on mm-hmm. set but by other accounts i don't know he seems like a kind of loyal cool dude well most episodes come up in other episodes like usually i don't like read too much before we do the episodes because usually i just like to have my mind blown by the things that you find in <laughs> the corners of the internet mm-hmm. um i did just happen to read one thing about fifth element where um he took a pay cut on that as well which he i'm did. sure you, you probably yeah, I was saw gonna bring yeah. that up too <laughs> And, like, that's, like, cool. And I think the line I read was that, like, um, 
you know, uh, if he likes a project, like he'll, he can make it work or whatever the line was, but yeah, essentially when it came to the fifth element, he had been interested in the movie when it first went into pre-production, but then they couldn't find a studio willing to put the budget into it. So they kind of called off the movie for a couple years. And then when it started up production again, Luke Besson just happened to be in a producer's office when Bruce Willis called that producer to talk about a different movie. And since they knew each other, Luke Besson asked if he could just get on the phone and say hi. And he mentioned that they were getting the fifth element going again. But because of budget restrictions, they were going to have to go with a lesser known actor who wouldn't cost as much. And Bruce Willis on the phone allegedly said to him, well, let me read the script. And if I like it, we can talk like a deal. Mm -hmm. And yeah. that's what happened because he liked the script and wanted to work with Luke Besson. That's awesome. Yeah. When you see that happen a couple of times, it makes you think, well, there's a trend going here. Mm -hmm. And then you see him working on like he's been loyal to like um, M. Night Shyamalan and taking chances with him and stuff. And I don't know. It's like it's like there's two different versions of Bruce yeah. Willis. And I don't know which one so, uh, to believe is the real one. Yeah. It's like some eccentric character that we don't really know. Yeah. But also just the fact that, you know, he's in st stuff like this and, again, the M. Night Shyamalan movies and some other sci-fi sci stuff like Looper. Uh, it makes me wonder, like, is he a fan of, like, sci-fi stories? Like, like, for him to constantly jump at, like, the weird shit like this, it makes me think he must have some kind of interest in these. But, again, just to look at him, you know, the kind of person he seems to be, I wouldn't think, like, oh, he's a big, like, Star Trek fan or something. But... Right. Yeah, it's something else. I don't know. And then, like, the the choices he makes with these, like, the majority of the time, the big sci-fi films he's done, excluding, like, the surrogates, they all end up being actually really good. It's like he has an eye for these stories and these uh, directors that will somehow work out and make, like, really interesting right. and most of the time successful movies. Yeah, and he doesn't have to be, like, well, not so much a diva, but doesn't have to be, like, a, a money hungry about it. Mm -hmm. You know, just taking a cut. But then, too, it's like, how much money has he got? How much more does he need? You know, yeah. that's co it's cool to hear that he will, or at least that for a time, would wasn't all just in it for the money. Yeah. Now, if you're asking these days, I don't know, because, again, if you scroll through the last, like, five to eight years of his filmography, there are stuff like Looper and one or two mm -hmm. other things, like Split and uh, Glass in there. But holy cow. Oh, no. I'll take a peek at the red box every once in a while, Millsy. And there's <laughs> some never before seen Bruce Willis vehicles in those. Yeah. Just uh, get a load of some of these titles here. Please. This is just like recent stuff that he has done that no one has ever heard of. Apex. Science fiction film. Surviving the game. Out of death. Midnight in the switchgrass. Cosmic sin. Breach. Hard kill, survive the night. These sound like um, sound like Seagal movies. Seagal movies, yeah. <laughs> Trauma Center, ten minutes gone. Oh, that that's a Seagal one for sure. <laughs> and then Motherless Brooklyn is like the last pretty oh, interesting movie okay. that he was in. Kind of a small part, but huh? He needs a resurgence. Yeah, but yeah, uh, Bruce is great in the movie. Mm -hmm. Like I say, he just kind of like gave himself up to this part. And uh, they talk in that documentary about how they specifically wanted to kind of get rid of the I'm just a badass all the time vibe right. of him, which I think yep. they do pretty well. Oh, yeah. Uh, Brad Pitt, always in the movie less than I remember when I watch it. 
he's in it a lot up in that first the first third maybe yeah i mean when they're in the insane asylum he's there a lot but that sequence can't be more than like 20 minutes of the movie right um yeah actually that sequence i'm thinking i'm thinking like oh it's at least for the first half hour but yeah it's not like it's him the entire time so it's probably only is but yeah like he's in that sequence and then i feel like you don't really see a scene with him again until that dinner party which feels like it's late in the movie that is it is the dinner party and then one more yeah he's part of like the crazy scheme at the end with the 12 the army of the 12 monkeys but that's almost done in like montage or something because that's not the main focus of the movie it turns out Mm -hmm. which is one of the like clever things about it so yeah he's like he's in it a lot less than i always remember and then like christopher Plummer, he's a big name he's in this movie for like two scenes again been a while since i've seen the movie back then first seeing it, i didn't even know who he was and then when i saw the credits i was like oh shit who what is he in this and sure enough yeah it's 15 seconds of screen time <laughs> and then even like technically the villain of the movie because the whole thing is bruce willis thinks that it's uh brad pitt's character and the army of the 12 monkeys that are going to unleash this virus but it turns out that's not true and the real villain of the movie is david morse who again he's in three scenes yeah like definite that guy actor he's in like three scenes of the movie and like it's like all of the characters who aren't bruce willis and madeline stowe are like all mcguffins or something like (laughs) they it's like bruce willis's whole goal in life in this movie is to go back in time and not necessarily stop something from happening because he says that they can't stop it but like to learn about it so that in the future they can try and retroactively fix what happened, mm-hmm. what was caused by the virus. So like the whole movie, he's like trying to figure out who done it. And then he only figures it out like right at the very, very end. And mm-hmm. all of the stuff that he's like working on and tracking down throughout the movie ends up being false. And I mean, that's right. one of the brilliant things about the movie that throws you for a loop. But stopping and thinking about it, you would imagine this is like, oh, I'm the hero saving the world and stopping something from happening. But 90% of the movie is just him struggling to get out of an insane asylum and not be arrested. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like it's Yeah, he's like constantly like escaping the law or just being homeless. Yeah. Or killing homeless other homeless bums. It's such a strange movie, even just conceptually. But man, oh, yeah. I love it because it's so different from like anything else. Especially for the time and just, yeah, it's such a, it's such a like a tight story that I love and- Getting into like the the time travel aspect of it, and that it 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 does present a closed loop kind of, mm-hmm. you know, he doesn't change anything. Yeah, it all comes back to like you know those opening shots of him seeing himself, but you don't know that until the end. And... Mm-hmm. So let me actually ask you a question about the whole closed loop and did mm. Bruce Willis actually accomplish anything? So Terry Gilliam, again, in that documentary that I watched, he was dead set on the movie opens on young Bruce Willis's eyes. Like, mm-hmm. as he's seeing himself die. And then he wanted the movie to close on young Bruce Willis's eyes, having just watched himself die when the audience figures that out at the end. But one of the pr- other producers, like, pushed and pushed and pushed and pushed and finally convinced Terry Gilliam to film two other scenes. One is David Morse getting on the airplane and sitting down next to the female astrophysicist who I think is supposed to be the same woman. It is. In the future, yeah. doesn't really make sense, though, because she's the same age. Well, that's what I was going to ask you. Do you understand 
what was happening there and why? Because I only know because I watched the documentary. No. I think when I was just looking at the cast or I was looking at something on IMDb and I saw that that was the same person. I was like, is that, I think that's what made me look. Cause I was like, is that supposed to be the same lady? Cause it's, she's the only one that they really like, you know, give more emphasis to in the future. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But then I was just like, but this is, you know, what? 20 something years in the past. She still looks the same. So yeah, I think it's 30 years if I'm not mistaken. That's what I mean. So like I didn't, part of me was just like, you know, did they just not even acknowledge her age just so it's something that the cat, the, uh, the viewer could pick up on? So, yeah, I was completely lost, honestly. And the funny thing is in the documentary, they constantly talk about how this scene is the part that will make audiences realize everything will be okay when I really didn't get that at all. No. Because, <laughs> yeah, like you say, she appears the same age as she is in the future, which wouldn't makes sense if you think that you're seeing her from the past but that's not what it is like in the scene in the airport you see bruce willis's character's friend uh, jose i think his name is or yep yeah yep. uh like he's come back and then when like bruce willis is like running up an escalator or something you see a quick shot of like one of the other people from the future and i guess the idea is after bruce willis took his teeth out and refused to come back mm-hmm a bunch of the other characters from the future came back in time to either capture him or mm. to try and like stop resolve him. the issues for themselves and figure out the truth. And so that's supposed to be her back in time sitting on the plane. And since he sit the like apocalypse nut uh, with the virus sits down next to her in the plane, that's supposed to be her being like, okay, well now I know who it was that had the virus. And when she, goes back to the future like Bruce Willis inevitably usually does after like two days or whatever, she'll now have the answers she needs and they can fix the future. That's not completely clear to me. No, not at all. <laughs> like It's not yeah, like spelled that. out in the least, but that's the, <laughs> that's the concept. I'm actually bothered by that now. <laughs> yeah, I honestly feel like I would have preferred if they left that stuff out and it did have that closed loop, he solved nothing kind of down ending which yeah. is what terry gilliam wanted very similar to brazil and he was like against having the quote-unquote happy ending of that scene that allegedly tells yeah. the audience everything will be okay like for that to work for me needs like i don't know like some more like exposition from jose or something yeah it, it needs a couple lines of dialogue or yeah. like a scene of them in the future deciding to all come back and saying why they're yeah. doing it or something even if he was just like we're all here or you know yeah there's a whole team here, something. So I could be like, rather than just being like, why is she there on the plane? Like, or like, you know, if they had her? a scene where it, it cuts to like the plane is landing and David Morse is like asleep. And then you hear like, uh, you know, please bring your seat backs and tray tables up. And then he like wakes up and turns and looks and she's not there. And then they mm-hmm. cut to her in the future, like insinuating she disappeared. Yeah, like Bruce Willis always totally. does. Like oh. that would have even helped. <laughs> but that would have been great. But it's yeah, so just vague. Like, <laughs> It's too vague. That like, God, it almost takes a takes a hit for me because of, because of that. Because it doesn't really bother me because you know that's like one little moment at the end of the movie that otherwise it's like it is that complete loop and that's like one of the things I just love about it. Even if you don't understand it, you can just go ahead and assume that you know nothing got solved and it's all just going to happen again or whatever, which is fine by me, but. Don't love that moment, but... It's kind of like what I've always liked it was the closed loop. I mean, 
Yeah, I don't hate it for that, but I'm just like, oh, I wish they were. I wish they they explained or did something a little stronger there. To yeah, it doesn't help anything for me, but it also doesn't really hurt it for me. Yeah, I mean, it's still great. Mm-hmm. But man, was not expecting that explanation. <laughs> yeah, again, I only know from watching that documentary. Mm-hmm. Jeez, okay. This movie was inspired by a 1962 French short film called La Jetée by Chris Marker. Have you ever seen La Jetée? No, didn't know that was a thing. I feel like it was on a previous like DVD special edition I had of this or something, and I watched it once. It's very strange. It's in black and white. Pretty much the entire thing is still photos. It's not like shot on a camera. And I no, read I that that's already. because the guy that made the short film couldn't afford to rent the camera for more than a day. So there's like one shot in the entire like 30 minute short film that is in motion. It's going to be a no for me, dog. <laughs> <laughs> it's kind of interesting. So it's just like a lot of still shots with like narration and music over it. But, you know, it's essentially the the big idea that they took for that that inspired 12 monkeys was the idea of someone traveling back in time and their younger self seeing them die and not understanding like that's oh. the okay the thing that they took for it uh, from it just a little kernel of an idea yeah but it it does say in the credits of this movie i think like inspired by la jete or whatever hmm. okay Universal had cold feet at the time about making this because Waterworld's budget was at the time getting very out of control. And that's what led uh, Terry Gilliam to ask Bruce Willis to lower his fee so that they could get him in the movie because otherwise they couldn't afford him and still make it. Mm, Okay. The budget for this movie was just shy of 30 million. And that was one of those caveats that the studio said, like, you'll, you can have final cut if you stay under budget. And so he was like Hmm. bound determined he was going to, which I think ended up being a good thing. Yeah, I mean, just goes to show you how much you could do back then with 30 mil. Mm-hmm. Especially, I mean, you know, we don't have to go into how how much we love the practical effects, of course, because, man, there's some cool shit in this movie, too. Yeah, there is. Just between sets and um, camera tricks, you know, and just uh, mm-hmm. the different stuff with the animals. I mean, there's so much of it I love. That physical, like, television ball in that interrogation room you yeah. mentioned earlier. That weird chair on the wall they strap him to. Yeah. It's just got like kind of like that like oozy kind of grimy vibe living on the Oh, everything is grimy. Yeah. It's just dirty. Because of the low budget, they couldn't afford to rent uh, studio space. So almost everything in the movie was shot on locations. So like they actually had to find disused like uh, factories and things to film all of the future stuff in. Which Mm. is perfect because uh, Terry Gilliam loves like found objects and things so yeah like the time machine that wasn't even originally supposed to be in the movie per se but they do have that shot of them sending him back that tube thing yeah it's like uh the the plastic condom thing that he's in and then it like slides into the wall uh that was like a giant like turbine in a factory that they just took the door off and put the plastic thing on the front oh no shit Yeah. It was cool. Um, I liked his, when he goes outside and he's like picking bugs and stuff, that like rubber suit they have him in and that. Mm-hmm. Man, that was good. I mean, of course they had to have made that thing and it's cool because it's got all the zippers and the clasps and all yep. that. Like, God damn. It's an awesome looking outfit even before that thing gets put on him. It's so like complicated and like mm-hmm. uh, steampunk looking. Oh yeah. Love it. Speaking of the 
that uh, television ball and the like chair on the wall. That was so Terry Gilliam openly admits that he's a fan of an artist named uh, Lebius Woods. I'm not sure if that's exactly how you pronounce it, but um, this guy Woods actually successfully sued Universal for copying one of his designs, which is if you look it up online, the piece of art is called Neo Mechanical Tower Upper Chamber. Uh-huh. And it is pretty much exactly that mm. room with the chair and the, the TV ball. Oh, good for him. Like, they ripped it off hard. <laughs> yeah. Have you ever seen the TV series that they based on this movie? No. Like, I know, like, kind of in passing that that's a thing, but yeah, I don't know shit about it. Came out on Sci-Fi Channel in uh, 2015 and ran for four seasons, so it must have oh, been God. relatively really? popular. Yeah. I read a little synopsis of it. I don't remember the finer points. It sounded pretty different, but like the the main couple of characters were all there: mm-hmm. James Cole, uh, Bruce Willis's character, Madeline Stowe's character. They changed her name, but it's still her. And then they made Brad Pitt's character a woman. It's like one of mm-hmm. the kind of major changes that they made. But okay, I don't know. I like the movie enough that I don't really feel like I need to see. A drawn out yeah. four season version of it. No, I feel like me watching that, it would just tell me I, just to watch the movie again. Yeah. And uh, so the studio took a chance on this one and uh, it paid off. This movie was number one for like six weeks, I think, when it came out. Uh, it made $168.8 million in the box office. Damn. On Off 30 mil. $30 million budget. And there were some really interesting things in that documentary that I mentioned, including they go through the entire process of like screening the, an early version of the film for uh, viewers. And Terry Gilliam talks about the experience sitting in the back of the theater. And like, it seemed like people were reacting in all the right ways to the movie and like seemed to be really into it. But then when everybody filled out their like comment cards after the fact, it got like really bad ratings and it just didn't seem to jive. And then uh, the movie came out and was, like, hugely successful. And nobody really knows why, but Terry Gilliam and some of the other people involved uh, think that it's almost like the movie was so weird that people were afraid to admit to their friends that they liked it or something. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, it is weird. Yeah. Uh, But absolutely my favorite part of the documentary is they have a good long sequence. And this, like, comes right to something that you and I love because it's a part of this show is there's a whole part where they're in like a boardroom with a bunch of people and there is like the head um, advertising artist showing them all of the different concepts for posters and newspaper ads and like the Mm. sides of buses and billboards and things. Mm -hmm. If you haven't seen the documentary before, this is the part that I'm sure you will also love the most. It is that... It is fucking fascinating seeing all the different concept designs for the posters because this movie's weird anyway. And then just, it seems like they just said to their artists, like, okay, just do anything that comes to your mind. Mm. And there are some, I can't even describe how crazy some of the designs for the posters are. God, I feel like I've seen this, but I don't remember that at all. So now, of course, I have to watch it somehow. Yeah, it was really, really interesting. And I think you'd get a kick out of it. I I just loved that part, seeing like all of the different ideas that they had. Mm-hmm. God, it's like I want every movie to have an accompanying documentary that's just an hour of fly on the wall stuff like that. Yeah, this was an instance where because uh, Terry Gilliam had had such a bad experience with Universal before on um, Brazil, 
he basically paid a friend of his to make the documentary so that if things went cockeyed, he'd have proof of what happened this time around. Good. Good call. <laughs> yeah. I'm a big fan of this movie. Yeah, it's great. I mean, it's a five-star movie. Yeah. And we got a, a night packed of three of them. Mm. Let's move right on to The Fifth Element from 1997. Here he is, the one and only winner of the Gemini Crockett Contest. This boy is fueled like fire. So start melting, ladies, because the boy is hotter than hot. He's hot. Hot! Right size, right build, right head, right on. Right on, right on. Unbelievable! Wither, ladies, wither. He's gonna set the world on fire. Right here from 5 to 7, you know everything there is to know about that demon. His dreams, his desires, his most intimates of intimates. And from what I'm looking at, intimate is this stud muffin's middle name. So tell me, my man. You nervous in the service? Not really. is directed and written by Luc Besson. Similar to 12 Monkeys, I don't remember the first time I saw this. It would not have been in theaters, but uh, maybe again early 2000s, like when I was in high school or something. Mm -hmm. You? Again, I think I saw it like around when it came out. I really don't remember for sure theater or not. Mm -hmm. But I mean, I've been in love with this movie since I first saw it. Yeah, I I wish I could remember my feelings on it the first time around. I'm not sure if I would have loved it right away or not. I absolutely love the movie by this point. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it is just everything about it is a joy <laughs> to me. Yeah, it's almost like perfect. It's so different than like everything. It feels like it's packed to the gills with a great cast. Production design is amazing. Concepts. It's just this movie is like mind-blowingly good. Yeah, it's just, it's unlike just about anything else uh, visually. Like one of Luc Besson's edicts when making the movies, it takes place in like a lot of spaceships and stuff like that, but he was tired of movies with like dark, like shadowy corridors and stuff. So I wish I could remember the term he used, but he wanted the future in this movie to seem like very bright and crazy and goofy. And I mean, he he accomplishes that entirely. Exactly. Everything is yeah. like bright colors and bright which is lit. great though, because like plenty of it is still like worn down and grimy, and like mm-hmm. you know, like the the paint's been worn off. 
the the space taxis, you know, like yeah, it has a very lived in feel. Oh yeah, but there's just uh, there's just endless cool stuff in this movie. Yeah, and I mean, as far as like the designs go, Luc Besson is a big comic book fan. Uh, he's also European, so he's a big fan of guys like Jean Giraud, aka Mobius, uh, Jean Claude Mezieres, who is the artist behind Valerian, which Luc Besson mm. also made into a movie later on. Mm-hmm. Uh, Jean-Paul Gaultier, pretty much all the Jeans, it seems, but yeah. uh, he had those guys and a couple of other artists work on this movie. Uh, as I kind of mentioned earlier, uh, they had started production on this in 1991, pr- uh, pre-production, and they had he had all these artists do like 800-plus illustrations for all the Ugh. like costumes and the characters and the vehicles and the the sets and everything. God, is there a book out there of that? I need that in my life. Let me break your heart. Yeah. <laughs> After watching this movie, I was like, man, I need, there has to be an art book of this. And I looked it up and there is one that came out the same year the movie did oh, in God. 1997. If you want a copy, there's two available on Amazon for the low, low price of $525 Ugh. because it's just like out of print, hard to get. Right. And that is the only thing I could find. It does look like there's a shitload of concept design artwork in it, though. It's it's almost like a making of the movie book, not a strict art book, but it looked like there was a huge concept design section. Well, Millsy, if I ever won the lottery, you already know who's buying $1,000 worth of Fifth Element books. <laughs> yeah. One for you and one for me. Yeah, when I first looked it up and I saw that there was one, I was so excited, and then I saw that price and my heart sank. I oh. just I can't, can't justify that. No. As, as much as like a book is worthy of an art of version, mm-hmm. it feels like it's this, especially because yeah. it's like like goddamn mid nineties when they're still drawing stuff and it's not just all like I know you know computer paintings. Like the book is chock full of fucking Mobius designs. Like I want oh, it bad. <laughs> God damn it! Concept designs of everything is incredible, and here's a case of like you know there are people who hate when a practical effect is fake looking and prefer CG. And, you know, I don't have an issue with CG. I do wish that there was still more practical effects in movies, but right from the the jump in this movie, when those uh, aliens with like the big crazy suits and the little heads show up in the beginning mm-hmm. and they're waddling around, nothing about it looks, I mean, it looks physically real, but nothing about it looks like real or believable, but it still just looks so cool to me. Yeah. But it just it, it it shoots you into the future. Even though I mean that scene is in the past, but I just mean like futuristic yeah. beings. Like but then it sets the tone. Even like setting the tone early of the movie comes from just the design of the aliens. Mm-hmm. You know, like that kind of that goofy waddling is like fits in with the rest of the movie. Mm-hmm. And it's the kind of movie that obviously has like a, a little bit more of a lighthearted approach to everything. So it's not like aliens where I want everything to, I want to be completely immersed in the believability and reality of of Mm -hmm. that movie, you know, where the queen alien looks incredible anyway, but then they like shroud her in shadow a lot of the time to hide the seams and it works impeccably in this movie. Everything's brightly lit. Everything that's kind of fake looks even more fake because of the way that it's lit, but Mm -hmm. that's kind of the charm of it. And for sure, it's not, you know, it's, it's something where I'm more just sitting back in awe of how everything looks rather than nitpicking the the finer details of it just because it's like an overall aesthetic of just yeah. incredible designs and you know people taking chances and mm-hmm. it's like this singular vision like i don't want every movie to look like the fifth element 
you know, but I'm just like glad that the fifth element is there on yep. its own and it takes its ideas from, you know, the people behind the art and everything and just, it just fits like every part of it fits just the way that the actors play it. Bruce is great. He's got like, you know, he plays it like a little tongue in cheek at times. I mean, he's even like, he stuffs three people in the, in the <laughs> freezer in his apartment. I mean, it's like. There's like that coof. There's there's stakes in the movie. I mean, the the universe is about to end, but like you said, it's got that lighthearted tone. Yeah, it's funny. Mm-hmm. It's just good. Yeah. Speaking of Bruce in this one, he, I feel like his character is a, is less deep than it was in Twelve Monkeys, but that's kind of the point. Yeah. Is he, he needs to be less deep? Yeah. Like it's something that I feel like I didn't. I couldn't have put into words before, but I read about it after the fact, and it totally makes sense that the majority of the men in this movie, excluding Bruce Willis and the president, played by uh, Tiny Lister Jr., mm-hmm. they're all either kind of idiots or more effeminate. And mm-hmm. so Bruce Willis is playing kind of the lunkhead Neanderthal, like tough guy. And so he contradicts every, like most of the other characters in the movie, which is kind of the direction that they went with his character instead of making him like really deep. But God damn, if there aren't moments like, you know, the, it's kind of sappy that the entire premise of the movie is the fifth element is love. Mm-hmm. And I'll be goddamned if those scenes with him and Mila Jovovich throughout the film, he doesn't pull off like this weird I like I'm I'm this big dumb lug and I almost don't even know what to do with myself mm-hmm. around a woman but I feel things that are, are like coming right. across to the audience that I don't even know if I can describe kind of situation yeah. like No for sure. He's good. He's understated in the movie in a weird way. Yeah. It's almost like an everyman kind of hero, you know, like he is a cab driver with a with a past. Mhm. Which I like. He's a little John McClaney. He's like a little oh, yeah. less jokey but Mhm. No, but it's there. God, I mean, Mila Jovovich, I think, is fantastic in it, too. Yeah. This was early for her in her career. I think this was like the fifth or sixth thing that she did, and it's the thing that really put her on the map. Mm-hmm. And um, just speaking, like, with uh, 12 Monkeys, of somebody just, like, putting themselves in the hands of the, of the director, this could have gone really bad for her if the movie wasn't successful. Oh, yeah. Because she's playing such a weird character who acts strange barely has any lines of understandable dialogue. Right. You know, she's got nude scenes and crazy costumes and crazy hair, just the the whole thing. But man, yeah. she plays it good. I mean she She fully committed. <laughs> oh, totally. And she like acts good for having her own like gibberish language. Well it's funny you say that. <laughs> Are you aware that the language she's speaking is an actual language? No, see, I thought it was like they made it up for the movie. Well, they did make it up for the movie, but I would have guessed she was just making noises. But Oh, but it is an actual word. It's, she was... Yeah, like Luc Besson. So allegedly, Luc Besson came up with the base concepts of The Fifth Element and started writing it when he was 16 years old and worked mm-hmm. on it for like, I don't know, 30 years or something. And during that time, he kind of like... A, Tolkien with uh, Lord of the Rings, he invented his own language called like the divine language for Lilu to speak. And it only consists of about 400 words, but it is an actual language that if you learn it, you can communicate with people. Oh, no shit. That's awesome. So everything she says in the movie is actual dialogue. 
That's amazing. And in order for her to learn it, the only other person who knew the language was Luke Besson, and him and her would uh, just casually speak it like during filming to help her like brush up on it and remember like certain dialogue and things. That's crazy. It seems completely unnecessary, but it's pretty cool to know that they did it. Yeah, I mean, I mean, I mean she wields it pretty good in the movie. Mm-hmm. For sure, and it is just cool as she goes along. As she ends up talking more, like her her arc is great. Lilu Dallas multipass. That just that she starts as like a, you know, a dismembered hand, like the whole thing. <laughs> yeah, that tube she gets rebuilt in. I mean, there's only probably those are only the couple shots there that even like the CG looks like old. You know, it looks like mid '90s CG is a couple shots like when she's getting like her skin put back on the body and all that. Mm-hmm. But other than that, I thought most of it looks great. Yeah, the only other thing that looks kind of rough old CG to me is because a lot of it is integrated very well. I mean, when it comes to like the big city sh- uh, shots and like all the the gigantic skyscrapers and everything, mm-hmm. a lot of that is miniatures mixed with CG, so yeah. it helps. But oh, yeah. um, the ultimate evil is kind of uh, yeah, that's phony probably. looking to me, like the giant fireball in space. Mm-hmm. It's not in the movie a ton, but now there's only a couple couple shots I can think of where maybe even like later on when it's really like speeding towards earth that mm-hmm. didn't look all that great but those couple of things but so much of the other stuff just looks so good it's such mm-hmm. like such a good melding of practical and digital it's just yeah. so much stuff they like made for the movie that I just love and so many sets it seems like they had to make so many sets that were just so cool well, ship interiors. His apartment is amazing. Like every time oh, I see I an apartment, I just like lose my mind because it's, it's the coolest. It's the kind of thing where, like, as I'm looking at it, I'm thinking to myself, if I lived in this world, this would be the shittiest apartment, and I would hate it. But <laughs> as someone watching the movie who lives in like a normal home, I'm like, God, I'd love to live in a place like that. It's yeah. so like cramped and crummy, but yeah. at the same time, it's just cool looking. And I love like the fact that the refrigerator and the shower are like one mm-hmm. and the same, and then like yep. the bed folds into the wall and oh. gets like the fresh plastic wrapped sheets every day. Oh, and the best. The oh, I love the design concept of you know the the skyscrapers are like unbelievably high and there's like um, flying cars zipping around everywhere and uh, one of the walls on Bruce Willis's apartment God knows how high up this building just opens up and mm-hmm. uh, vehicles with uh, food almost like fu- futuristic food trucks will just pull up to the side of your house and you can get food like yeah. right out the window. It's amazing stuff like that. I just fucking love. It's perfect. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah, I just absolutely adore stuff like that. Mhm. I love the uh, fucking guy who tries to rob Bruce Willis with the oh, the, with the, the, the the picture of the photograph on his head. You <laughs> <laughs> were just like the way that whole scene, the way the guy the, he's clearly like future tweaking or whatever. Yeah. His performance is incredible. <laughs> yeah, it really is. Like I don't think I could be that high energy if you paid me a million bucks. That guy was so good. <laughs> right. And I just love yeah. the idea of the uh, the the picture on his head. It's so stupid, uh, but it's so stupid. But it makes perfect. sense. Uh, I don't know. That's all good. That's a, and like you said, like plays into the comedy of the movie. Mm-hmm. I mean, we got to talk about Ruby your Rod? friend and mine, Ruby Rod, Chris Tucker. Yeah, I don't know if there's like a better casting decision for that character because he's so amazing in it. Well, speaking of that, uh, they had originally cast Prince to play that part. I mean, 
Jesus. And uh, he would have if the filming didn't uh, conflict with his tour schedule, so thank goodness that happened. I mean, that's wild. Uh, I've never seen Purple Rain. I don't know how good of an actor he is, but I can't imagine he's anywhere as good in the part as Chris Tucker. I love Prince. Purple Rain is fantastic, but like Chris Tucker is Ruby Rod. Yeah. Like the the outrageous and androgynous as he is in that movie <laughs> is so perfect. He plays off of Bruce Willis so well. Like the two of them are time gold together. Are gold. Any t- and any time it's always like, uh, Corbin, my man. You know what he keeps saying? Like, come, in, come, in, come, like, come in, come in, come in, come in. Come my man. It's just like I died laughing every time. The dozen times I've seen this movie, I think I've always laughed at him. Just like his crazy outfits. Yeah. <laughs> you know, his hair. Uh, his hair. Uh. I mean, just, yeah, it's just like. This whole entire movie makes me smile, and he's just like another huge part of that. Yeah, like, again for nobody him, like, else could play that role. That role was made no. for him; it's owned by him. Uh, yeah. He deserves an Oscar for that role, as far as I'm concerned. He's incredible as Ruby Rod. I could watch like a whole documentary about like his life at the time. I mean, maybe a year or two before that, he's like in Friday, Friday. which was like a huge movie, and then he goes and does this. Like, if pe- I don't know if people gave him a hard time about it, what well, they shouldn't have because he's amazing. I've yeah. always thought he was great in that movie, and just. Like, what an iconic movie character. Yeah, for sure. Just his look. Just like, his those look. outfits with, like, the big crazy collar that, like, exposes his shoulders. and The the one with, like, at the actual opera where it's, like, it's got the big collar, but it's all, like, roses, roses and stuff. Yeah. It looks amazing. He's like, got, like, the pointy elf shoes, which you don't always oh, notice unless you're looking. No. It's like, it's, oh, he's just, like, plays it so perfectly. Yeah. It just makes me smile. So after Prince uh, was out of the picture, it actually came down to Chris Tucker and Jamie Foxx, who Jamie oh, really? Foxx is a really good actor and I like him. I can't imagine him in this role. No. So I think they went the right direction. Uh, allegedly, the thing that it came down to was that Luke Besson thought that uh, uh, Chris Tucker's slender frame fit the character better. I mean, who knows like what the direction was to play that character? I mean, you... Again, it's so iconic. It's like I couldn't even picture. If I <laughs> yeah. try to even picture Jamie Foxx doing it, it's just like him trying to do Chris Tucker as Ruby Rudd. Yeah. But uh, that wouldn't even have been a thing, so I don't even know. It's like trying to imagine a different actor playing Peter Venkman or something. It just... It, yeah, pretty much. Perfect casting, like one in a million, Chris Tucker is Ruby oh, Rudd. Excellent. Man, it's a good cast because in addition to Bruce and Mila and Chris, you've got uh, Ian Holm in there, mm-hmm. who I always kind of forget about uh, as Vito Cornelius. Yep. Luke Perry, your favorite <laughs> cast member from 90210. It's crazy to me that he is listed in the opening credits. He's in two scenes in the movie, and uh, he ha- he must have less than 100 lines or words of dialogue in the movie. Yeah, it's not much. He's he hardly was super it. popular at the time. I That's guess so. It was uh, 90210 still on at the time? or mm, I can't confirm or deny, but I feel like right around there. He looked, a, he looked like he did. Yeah. And then Gary Oldman in the movie as Zorg, Man. who it's kind of funny watching at this time. You, you know, he's necessary to the plot, but uh, something I didn't really realize until I read about it is that he and Bruce Willis, like the hero and the villain of the movie, never no. actually meet one another. No screen time. I had known that from before. Yeah, it never occurred to me. And, you know, really the villain of the movie is like the ultimate evil and those crazy aliens with like the big ears who Gary Oldman fucks over 
Mm-hmm. Or, you know, they wouldn't be involved in the plot if it wasn't for being hired by Zorg, Gary Oldman's character. But Gary Oldman, his character almost feels like unnecessary to the plot. <laughs> like he feels like a third wheel. I like him. I wouldn't want him not to be in there. I'm not saying him being in the movie is bad, but it's funny how it's like he keeps trying to accomplish something that he never really gets close to accomplishing. Right. And uh, you could write him out of the movie and it probably wouldn't hurt it too bad. But Gary Oldman and that look and that performance, I wouldn't want to lose. I mean, it's like he's that middleman and it's just weird Gary Oldman, weird 90s Gary Oldman. (laughs) Yeah. Apparently, like, Bruce Willis looks back on this movie fondly and, like, talks about how fun it was making it and how much he likes it. Uh, Gary Oldman, on the other hand, he's friends with Luke Besson. They'd obviously done uh, Leon the Professional together. But mm-hmm. I guess the way that Gary Oldman says it, uh, Luke Besson, like, produced, like, a pet project movie of Gary Oldman's, like, right before this. So he almost felt indebted to Luke Besson and took the role in the movie without even having read a script. And uh, hates the movie now in retrospect. <laughs> Man, how could you hate this movie? I don't Gary know. Oldman. This is the guy who was in the uh, the remake of RoboCop, <laughs> and he hates this movie. Oh, <laughs> thankfully I remember nothing from that remake. So, yeah, consider yourself lucky. I do. Already mentioned Tiny Lister Jr. in there, fun character actor. Brian James from Blade Runner and a thousand other things is in this. I'm always a fan of him. Oh, yeah. He's the uh, general guy. Mm -hmm. And then Lee Evans is in this movie. I'd completely forgotten. He's hardly in it. Do you know who that is? Nope. He's on the, um, like, the pleasure cruise vessel. He's almost uh, wearing, like, a cabin boy's outfit. He's kind of a nervous guy running around a little bit. Yep. He is an incredible comedic actor who I feel like just never had like a breakout. He's in Mouse Hunt with Nathan Lane. Uh and he's also in There's Something About Mary. He's the guy that pretends to be uh, like crippled and work for a museum. Yes. He's a great, great huh. comedic actor with like impeccable timing and like huge range. It almost I can't believe he's not in this movie more because it feels like he would have fit right in with uh everything that uh, Luc Besson wanted to do. Like, in another world, it almost feels like he would have been a decent choice for Ruby Rod or something because he's just so, like, versatile. But, mm-hmm. yeah, it's it's nice to see him in there. I wish he had a little more to do. But, uh, yeah, great cast. Movie looks incredible. I mean, I don't know how many more, like, great things I can say about it. <laughs> yeah. I mean, same here. It's another five-star movie after 12 Monkeys. I mean, <laughs> I could go on and on. I could, I could watch this movie. Well, both of them. I could could watch again right all three of them i mean i just love them yeah this is a much more watchable movie than 12 monkeys because it's less depressing (laughs) for sure and it's just more like fun and in your face but yeah i love both of them a couple of other fun little tidbits about this movie so the woman who plays the uh the diva like the singer the Mm -hmm. blue alien woman Mm -hmm. she's played by a woman named Maiwen Labesco. Uh, I guess she's like a, mu- a musician and an actress, and she's kind of a Madonna situation where she generally just goes by Maiwen, her first name. Uh, she was married to Luc Besson when they started making this movie. Mm-hmm. Partway through production, he left her for Mila Jovovich, and they got oh, married. Oh, God. <laughs> Delicious. So they got married in 97, and then uh, Mila divorced him in 99, and then married Paul W.S. Anderson. 
Who gave us all the Resident Evil movies. God damn. No, I did not know that. Lava Laguna. (laughs) Man. At the time, Fifth Element was the most expensive European film production of all time at $90 million budget. Mm, That's big money back then. It did 263.9 at the box office. Love it. Pretty good for the time. And uh, the final tidbit I have about this one is that, so like I mentioned, Mobius, a.k.a. Jean Giraud, he worked on the movie. But after the release of the film, he and Alejandro Jodorowsky uh, sued Luc Besson for plagiarizing their comic book, The Incal. <laughs> oh. Even though uh, Mobius worked on the movie. That's weird. The case was dismissed in 2004 on the grounds that, quote, only tiny fragments of the comic had been used and that Giro had accepted being hired on the movie before making any complaints. So I guess they saw it as like, you helped make the movie. You can't then claim that it plagiarized something you were involved with. Right. So. Yeah, that was a little weird. Yeah, there. I mean, it's it's well known again that Luc Besson is like a big fan of European comics, and anybody who is a fan of this movie knows that it was influenced by a billion things. Like um, uh, the aforementioned Jean Claude Mezieres, uh, he did a series of comics about a cab driver in a futuristic city that drives a, f- a flying cab, and mm-hmm. um, you know he was hired onto the movie specifically for some of those designs. I actually read that. Uh, Mezieres has always uh, had a thing against Star Wars because uh, some designs from some of his science fiction comics he felt were stolen flat out by George Lucas and company. Oh, no shit. And George Lucas is a known fan of like the Valerian comics. And so he was hesitant to work on an actual film. But when Luc Besson said to him, like, I want to use your ideas, but I want to pay you to help me bring them to life, then he basically accepted and apparently had good terms with Luc Besson when making this. And I mean, he went on, like I said, to direct Valerian, which is Mezieres' comic. So, Mm -hmm. but uh, yeah, just kind of weird that Jean Giraud's. Yeah. Yeah. That that just, that's a, that's a head scratcher. Yeah. But uh, yeah, there are some similarities with the Incal. Nothing super specific. Sure. But it's like how much of that's introduced by Moby's drawing stuff for this movie too, you know? Like, yeah. Who knows? That's why we need that art book, Millsy. I know. I want it so fucking bad. So goddamn bad I want that book. (laughs) Come on, Titan Publishing. Do a new edition. Seriously. I mean, they're going to sell them. Yeah. Anyway. Anyway. uh, Time to move on to our last film. Let's do it. Jumping ahead to 2012, we have Looper. So do you know what's going to happen? You done all this already? As me? I don't want to talk about time travel shit. Because if we start talking about it, then we're going to be here all day talking about it, making diagrams with straws. It doesn't matter. When I hurt myself. It changes your body. This is what I do now. Change your memory. It doesn't matter! My memory's cloudy. It's a cloud. Because my memories aren't really memories. They're just one possible eventuality now. And they grow clearer or cloudier as they become more or less likely. But then they get to the present moment and they're instantly clear again. 
I can remember what you do after you do it. And it hurts. So even when we're apart, you can remember what I do after I do it? Yes, but this is a precise description of a fuzzy mechanism. It's, it's messy. All I know, I know two things. I know what's happening in my head, and I know that you're still going to meet her. It's kind of weird, but I remember the circumstances under which I first saw this movie. Mm, um, I was looking forward to seeing it, and right around the time that it came out, uh, my father actually went into the hospital uh, with uh, some heart issues. Uh, it was like a sudden thing where he was at work one day and felt bad, so he went to the, hosp- the, the hospital, and they basically uh, caught his condition before it got worse. Mm. And uh, so I left work early that day to be at the hospital with him. And then, you know, he was, he was fine later in the day and uh, got out. And basically my mother and my grandfather and I went out to dinner like immediately after the hospital with my dad so he could get like a decent meal. And we're like sitting there. He still got like the hospital identification wristband thing on. And he was like, you want to go see that movie Looper? <laughs> So like straight from the hospital to IHOP, I believe, for dinner. And then we went straight from there and my dad and I went to see Looper in the theater. Perfect. And uh, we were both fans right from right from then. Yeah, I can remember. uh, I don't have nearly as cool of a story for the first time. (laughs) I don't know how cool it is. It's just it's very memorable to me because it's It's still crazy to me to think back. Like before he even went home from the hospital, we went to the movies. Flapjacks in a movie, Millsy. Yeah. I could just remember this just being on my radar. Um, I mean, at this point, Ryan Johnson had already put out Brick. Brick and Brothers Bloom. And Brothers Bloom. And I loved Joel, you know, friend of the show, Joel Lord, big fan of Brick. So I can remember seeing that. And then I think me and him probably saw Brothers Bloom in the theater. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I really loved that and just was ready for Looper. You know, just on... The premise alone, then you throw in Bruce and Joseph Gordon-Levitt, who I both like, you know, directed by Ryan Johnson, who I was a fan of at that point. Like, Here's the real yeah. question. Did you have any idea who Emily Blunt was at the time? You know, um, I did, based off of maybe a year before this, she did The Adjustment Bureau, mm. which is a, another movie that I love. Yep. Oh, I didn't know you loved it. Uh, I I saw that as well. Her Matt Damon, right? It's uh yep. based on a Philip K. Dick story. Mm-hmm. I wouldn't say I love that movie. I, I thought it was okay. I, I love that movie. So yeah, I'd seen her in that. I know she was in um, uh, she's like the Devil's Wear Devil Wears Prada. Mm-hmm. I believe it was like a big breakout role for her. Not that I I have seen that, but I can remember just being you know coming off Adjustment Bureau, and then right into this. So. Yeah, I did see Adjustment Bureau in the theater. I still don't really know if I could have put a name to a face or like knew who she was when I saw that movie. Mm-hmm. Really, the only context I had for who she was is I remember when they were going to make Iron Man 2 and they announced that Black Widow was going to uh, be in the movie. The yep. two front runners for the role were Scarlett Johansson and Emily Blunt. And mm-hmm. I didn't know who the fuck Emily Blunt was. But at the time, I remember she had a movie out in theaters called Sunshine Cleaning, which I had never seen, but like just based on not really knowing who she was and seeing the poster for Sunshine Cleaning, I was like, I don't know if she's right for the part. Hmm. <laughs> based on nothing, like I right. didn't really know. Right. 
Yeah. So. I'm a big fan of hers. I like I, as am I. I think she's great in this movie. Um it was many years before I knew she was British. Oh I know for that. sure. Yeah. I knew I know that. So mm-hmm. um, yeah, convincing. Very convincing actress, but um Yeah, she's a part of another great five star movie, Looper. Mm-hmm. Love the since I saw it. Like I said, at the top of the show. Curious to see how in the weeds you want to get about time travel, especially with this one. Well, one thing I love is that when the actual topic of how the time travel works comes up in the movie mm-hmm. and uh, young Joe asks old Joe <laughs> about it, old right. Joe just immediately shuts him down and is like, we're not talking about it. If we if we get started on it, we're just going to be sitting here drawing diagrams all day. <laughs> right. And I think that's so smart because there's already been plenty of movies to like, you know, have Doc Brown explain how everything works or whatever. Mm-hmm. So I think that the concept of loopers, like, it's like loopers exist because of time travel, because it's available to them. Mm-hmm. We understand how the loopers function, which gives us the most basic understanding of how the time travel works in the movie. So right. the specifics of like how the time machine works or even what it really looks like, it's just like a big ball yeah, that's, <laughs> with some chicken wire inside. Like, Yeah, that's nothing to me. That stuff yeah, isn't but... important. Right. And uh, I love the way that they handle it in the movie. Like they, there's a couple lines where... You know, it's necessary to the plot to know that old Joe, when, when young Joe does something, old Joe then it like appears to him as a me- like a foggy memory because like the mm-hmm. younger version of himself has now technically done it 30 right. years prior or whatever. So like little things like that, Bruce Willis has the line about how he's trying to explain it and he's like, uh, you know, you're giving like a a solid answer to a foggy question or something like that. Like Mm -hmm. little things like that more than explain the time travel to me. That said to your point, do you have any like issues with the time travel or any thoughts about it? Or I was curious just to like maybe talk it out. So I do like all those same aspects of it. Cause I mean, it's come up on the show before too sometimes. And this isn't me from like trying to be like, Oh, I'm so smart and understand all bits of time travel. It's more just like, I can't like help but obsess over the time travel stuff sometimes, even though, I, but I cannot figure it out plenty of times. So, you know, I kind of just well, will throw myself like going in circles with time travel stuff, like in a good way. Like I enjoy myself, but it's just, it's always a part of time travels. I always just try to, you know, I don't know if I'm overthinking it, but. Well, what were your thoughts on it? Was there something to you took that. an issue with or. Not even so much to to take issue with. I always just want, I like just to like talk it out even. I always think, so with the little boy is the Rainmaker. Mm -hmm. He becomes the Rainmaker based off of old Joe coming back in time. Shooting him in the face and trying to kill his mom. Like that is part of, that's like that him coming to power is based off of old Joe killing his mom. I mean, so I would say yes and no. I almost feel like the Rainmaker becoming the Rainmaker is inevitable because it's well, it's proven that you can change the future because old Joe is concerned that if young Joe does something differently, he will never have like met his wife. And his right. whole thing is like, you know, young Joe proposes like, fine, show me a picture of your wife. And I will, if I ever see her, I will avoid her completely so that she won't die because she's with you. But old Joe's Mm. like, no, you don't have to avoid her. Like, if we do what I want to do, then, you know, she doesn't have to die and we can still be with her. 
So it's proven right there that you can change the future, but that would mean like it doesn't necessarily mean that it's like a loop that Joe always comes back in time or yeah, comes back in time and uh, is the reason that the Rainmaker becomes the Rainmaker. Like you're led to believe that because you see like that potential shot of him when young Joe is saying like, it's right then that I saw how it happens. Yeah, and he, that's he what pictures I'm like. the kid on a train, like mm-hmm. bleeding and alone and angry, but that doesn't actually happen. He imagines it happening, and I think he imagines that specific scenario because he says when he was a kid, like, he was, like, on a train by himself. So Mm. it's like he sees, he can see how negative influences on the kid, on Sid when he's young, could turn him into the Rainmaker, but I don't think it's 100% guaranteed that he will become the Rainmaker because of Bruce Willis. I think it's possible that he's either fated to always become him or he became him in Bruce Willis's timeline because of other similar circumstances or something. You see what I'm saying? I do. Cause well, it, then I kind of, I don't know how much of an issue I have because I feel like in old Joe's timeline, he talks, you know, about the rainmaker comes in and it like immediately starts closing loops and like alludes to hating loopers. Yeah. Like because he's, he's had yeah. that, he has a history with loopers, which would be old Joe killing his mom. That's a fair point. So yeah, so when I was watching it, this I can remember any time I've watched it, which I've seen it several times at this point. It's never like it doesn't never ruins the experience for me, but it is always just part of it. It's like I'm always like trying to think about like how how do how do I reconcile that part of the plot? Because I always think like so if we say like it's old Joe's timeline and he's like you know going. He closes his loop, kills his old self, goes to China, the whole thing, gets grows old, comes back in time. So at the point where Emily Blunt is killed in his original timeline, he has let's say he's in Par he's in China at that point. And at the same time his old self is coming back and killing Emily Blunt. But we don't know for sure that that's what happened in Bruce Willis's timeline because we okay. never see it. So that's just, it's safe to assume, like, just, like I said, it could have been it could any be number fate. of influences. Yeah. And regardless of whether it's old Joe coming back and killing Emily Blunt, maybe it's just fate that the Rainmaker will always become the Rainmaker. And it's one of these things, like, no matter how hard you try, you'll, mm-hmm. like, time will always correct itself and, like, end with the same eventuality or something. Oh, right out maybe. of the time machine. You know, the Guy Pierce movie, especially. I know oh, I've never book, actually but... seen that one. I've only seen the original. Oh. It's kind of there's something in that to similar like if you try to change the past like time time will correct itself basically. Yeah, I know there's other movies that have done that too, mm-hmm. but I don't remember exactly so, what. Yeah, this like I said, it doesn't usually. I always just like really get into the weeds in my head about the time travel stuff, and I just it's for fun. But like I said, it doesn't. I was like just kind of like excited to talk it out with you just to see what you think about that that part of the timeline. So yeah, again, it doesn't ruin anything. It's not, it's certainly not like a gripe I have. It's just always like, you know, how far, how far into it do you think? Cause I also like when you can explain something by just being like, you know, for the movie's sake, like, yeah, we're not going to sit here and talk about it and start drawing diagrams. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like, it's not important. Yeah. I love that. I, I even like that the whole, you know, like the scarring of your body and then it shows up on your older self. Mm-hmm. Like, that's just something like, I feel like we haven't seen before. So I enjoy. Yeah. Stuff like that. And then 
this movie's just like good sci just good future sci-fi anyway the way uh you know like the homelessness epidemic that's going on mm-hmm. like the old old tech versus new tech where it's like it seems like you know uh, old vehicles have been like retrofit with um solar, like solar energy or something yeah like joe's riding around in like a 94 mazda miata as like his like classic car where mm-hmm. plenty of people would like laugh at that you know <laughs> nowadays and everything all that shit i love slap bikes you know, like weird hover bikes with a cool name. Mm-hmm. Um, there's so many like little things, little future bits. He's got a like he's got a cell phone that looks like it's just a piece, a of, piece glass. of glass. I love that. Yeah. Oh yeah. Hardly see it, but it's cool. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I only think you can see it once or twice. Like Bruce Willis when he like breaks into the library and he like the the monitors yeah, they just like pulls pull out, out of the, the table. Yeah. yeah, that's cool. Stuff like that, I just love. It is funny though. I was thinking to myself like. You know, in the future, everything is like really simple and clean. And he like pulls the like the sheet of glass up out of the table, and that's like very futuristic and kind of modern feeling. But mm-hmm. then he still prints out a piece of paper, right? Because it's necessary <laughs> yeah. for the plot that uh, Joseph Gordon-Levitt accidentally get a piece of it. Mm-hmm. You know, later on, when yeah. in reality, like these days, it's like, oh, well, uh, I don't need to like mail you something or fax you something or even scan something if i want to show you a document i can just take a picture of my phone on my phone and text it to you or whatever like Hmm. or like these days you know with like covid they say like you know don't carry your covid uh, vaccination card around with you in case something happens to it just keep a picture of it on your phone and it's like right but in the future they have that giant printer that prints out the map it doesn't (laughs) bother me but like i couldn't help but think about it yeah like some like things like that i'll just kind of be like how I think, like, the world will always be, there'll always be, like, this this kind of, like, cross between the old and the new. Mm-hmm. You know, there'll always be people that want to be able to print out something or yeah. carry something. And, you know, it's not that, that far in the future where, you know, I can still believe that there would be printers and everything. Yeah. It's just, it's just, like, I knew it was a convenience for the plot, but it doesn't really bother me. Yeah. So you had mentioned, you said they're called slap bikes? Yeah. That's kind of a cool term. I don't really know what it refers to, but can I tell you what the the one like kind of tooth grindingly dumb thing about the movie is? Not even dumb, but the thing that I find like kind of it's it's trying to be cool, but it comes off as cringy to me. Ooh, can I try and guess first? Go for it. I feel like it's probably pretty obvious. <laughs> is it the telekinesis? No, like that I don't no. mind. It's a means to an end, like the whole Rainmaker thing. Um, it's specifically relating to the terms used for something, Oh, like slap bike. Um, let me think. Is it the, uh, God, whatever they call the gunman? Yes, it's it's the guns. I hate the fact, because it almost feels like we're, we're trying to be like noir or something. I hate that they refer to the guns as blunderbusses. And I hate that they refer to those guys with the pistols as Gatmen. I just, it Uh, it makes me fucking cringe so hard. I don't, I don't know why it just, it feels like someone who thinks it's really cool to have those nicknames, but it's really not. It just comes off so like lame to me. I don't know why that if I could change anything about the movie, that'd be it. 
Like, fuck if I the time like... travel doesn't make sense. Just call them <laughs> shotguns or something. I hate the term blunderbuss in this context. <laughs> like, even it's the official name. Oh, like, when shit. Joseph Gordon-Levitt walks into the, like, mm-hmm. the inner sanctum where you're not allowed to bring your guns, there's, like, a thing hanging on the wall that says, uh, Looper's blunderbuss is here. Yeah. And it's like, no, that's that's not just what Joseph Gordon-Levitt calls it because he likes old-timey stuff. That's the official name within the criminal organization. Mm-hmm. Blunderbuss. I, I just don't like it. Yeah. I, that doesn't bother because it's like such like a weird shaped gun. I just never even thought of it. I don't love the Gatmen. I think that is kind of a lame name. Yeah, I haven't really, I've never really thought about it until now. But I could roll with you on that one. Yeah, I, I those two terms I fucking hate. But the rest, you know, whatever. It's all fine. I even like the idea of Joseph Gordon-Levitt. The Loopers are on the kind of lower end of the pay scale mm-hmm. and so they have like the blunt instrument kind of weapon where the whole idea of the Gatmen is that they're like the elite like yeah. soldiers for the criminal organization so they have a gun that's more refined about range and accuracy and skill mm-hmm. and that even comes into play later on in the movie which I think is cool where Joseph Gordon-Levitt can't get to Bruce Willis in time to kill him, so he has to kill himself, and mm-hmm. because he only has the blunderbuss, which has a short range. Like, I like all that element. I just wish they hadn't called them that. You know, I did notice this time around. I I was thinking to myself, I like, are loopers legal in like Young Joe's time? Because it's they'll just have a sign that says "Looper, leave your blunderbuss here." Like if you could just walk in a store, and see I would that, think like, not because time travel's illegal, and the loopers I mean. are using time travel. Plus, they're murdering people. You know, they work for the criminal organization, so I would say no. But then that—that's just the weirdest part. Why I guess is just for the movie's sake to have like that sign with the a box to put your gun in. But yeah. Yeah, it's just like one of those like seedy under underground crime things everyone knows about that they just don't talk about. But yeah, I mean, it seems like they're in a shitty part of town and everything. I guess, yeah, that'd probably be the best way to explain it. Yeah. What are your thoughts on, or what are your feelings on the fact that this movie is like two different movies almost bifurcated exactly down the middle? Like, it's all the Joe and the Looper stuff and the crime family and everything. And then just about the halfway point of the movie, I think it's like five minutes before or after the halfway point, all of a sudden you introduce Emily Blunt and the second half of the movie takes place like out in the country with like cane fields and there's all of a sudden, you know, you we'd heard of the Rainmaker before, but like mm-hmm. all of a sudden Sid's a character and Emily Blunt's a character and like the entire course of the movie changes at that point. Yeah, I mean, I, I kind of like, like this whole general story, the way that goes. I mean, rather than it's, I guess it's maybe even like uh visually feels more abrupt to me mm-hmm. just with the change between the city and the country, but it just really makes it feel like it's two very distinct halves. Not yeah, that that's necessarily sure. a good thing or a bad thing. I mean, it makes sense that you don't want to like, they could have just had, random scenes with Emily Blunt and the kid earlier in the movie so it doesn't feel so abrupt when they're introduced later but Mm -hmm. then the whole time you'd be wondering what the hell do they have to do with anything and it kind of would have served no purpose yeah I guess it's it's just weird that they show up in the middle of the movie like every time it happens to me I'm like oh gosh yeah this is what the movie actually is about yeah I feel like um 
any other time, like any other movie, like, yeah, you would have seen a scene of those two. Mm-hmm. Her, like her and the kid early on with like no connective tissue whatsoever to the rest of the movie. Yeah. And then over time, as you're like learning, like what old Joe is doing there, then you'd be like, oh, it's them. So, yeah, I guess it's a different, I guess, is the way they do it. But it doesn't bother me at all. I mean, I just. Yeah. It's just unusual because you don't often like I can't even think of another example of something like that happening. Yeah, You don't often see it that way. It's not really a great comparison, but it's like if you didn't like meet Sarah Connor until like farther into the Terminator or something like mm-hmm. the movie's like firing on a lot on all cylinders up until that point. And then it, it slows down, calms down a little bit and then it starts to build tension builds back up. Mm-hmm. Cause then it's like, it's almost at that point you're like, they reintroduce the telekinesis stuff again. Yeah. There's a lot of little things like that that they set up earlier on. Like we hear tell of the rainmaker and there's like mm-hmm. the introduction of the telekinesis with the coins just because it's going to, be important later and all this so like right it if you stop and think about it too hard it feels like a little little clunky but i don't really know how else they do it because i do think like we're saying if they had introduced those characters earlier just for the sake of introducing them it would have been it would have potentially hurt the flow of things but yeah i like i like the way it flows now yeah you know make you start to learn a little bit more about like what old joe's doing there and then it factors into meeting them and then they're just so good her and the kid are both just so good Mm-hmm. That, you know, and then I love how Young Joe interacts with that. This movie, like, in like you know, recent memory has like one of my favorite scenes is when that one Gat Man comes to the house and uh, the kid falls down the stairs. Yeah, you know, like just the way that's like edited with like the slow mo and like the cuts and everything. I've watched that scene so many times and just how it ramps up to right as like he rips that guy apart and ex- the room explodes and then the it goes back to normal time and they fly they fly out of the front door like oh it's just like gets my heart pumping i love it yeah that's a good moment for sure yeah no, it really is i feel like unlike the first two movies we haven't really talked much about bruce willis i mean he's definitely a supporting character in this one even though he yeah is the main character in a manner of speaking but you know he comes in a little later and he ends up kind of being the villain a villain with a purpose. Yeah. Like, it's it's interesting because you understand his point of view and you understand Joseph Gordon-Levitt's point of view. And, ob- like, you could view them both as the good guy, except for the minor detail that Bruce Willis is killing children. Right. So kind of, well, it helps you, like, not have to feel remorse for him, I guess. Yeah. Now, I will say, you know, I think Bruce is a good choice for this movie. I do like him in general in it. I do feel like he's not his old self in this. And you could say part of that's because of the character, you know, because he, everything's been taken away from him and like, Mm -hmm. but he does feel a little more like the typical modern kind of stiff, stoic, less charismatic Bruce Willis. Yeah. He doesn't, he doesn't have any like instance to like, to play, you know, for laughs or... Yeah, you get little yeah. moments. I Like, I feel it's almost like uh, he's a coma patient and there's moments where I think like, oh, I think I just saw a little recognition in his eyes or something like a couple mm-hmm. moments during the conversation in the diner and then like the scene after we see him kill the first kid and he like is crying under the, uh, under that gigantic bridge or like overpass. Like, there's moments where I feel like I'm seeing the old Bruce mm-hmm. that I was so impressed by in something like 12 Monkeys, like his range and his vulnerability. But 
it's definitely less so in this movie. Yeah. To me. It's kind of like you said, with them being like more of a supporting role. Yeah, there's not a lot of time to, because you don't, like you can kind of see like that, the flashback for him in the future where he first meets his wife and he's kind of like smirking at her while there's like a bar fight going on. Like you, you only get like a little tinge of that yeah. until he's more like hard pressed man on a mission. I guess my question would just be like, there hasn't been a lot of major stuff that I've seen him in since this movie came out. You know, he had that tiny little moment at the end of uh split, which doesn't even really count. But then like, even in the movie glass, like, I don't know how successful he was at recapturing the character that he played in Unbreakable, but I wonder how much of it is he doesn't have a lot of time in this movie and he's playing this very specific character and how much of it is he just doesn't rise to the occasion anymore like he used to. And that's why Mm. he's in so many like direct to video movies is like kind of the question. Like, do you have a feeling on it? I'm not expecting you to say, oh, I know the answer, but like. Do you go one way or the other? Because I kind of go glass half empty and think he's just, his heart's not quite in it the way that it used to be. I would, I would say that just based on seeing the filmography, you know, of late, I don't, I don't get that impression from this movie. I think it's more of a, based on the the character and the script in this one, there's just not mm-hmm. opportunity for you to see that side of him in this one because the role he's playing. Yeah. I guess you could say it's like it's up to Joseph Gordon-Levitt to show him as a as a a young and playing more of that role and like having that character before he gets older. I think there could just like I said, based on like the movies he seems to make now, it seems like he's just you know going through the paces. Jobber, kind of. But as far as Looper, Looper feels more to me like he's he's there to be the villain and. You know, like, again, they play some of the sympathy, like, because you can see his side of things, but then it's basically out the door once he starts killing kids. So mm-hmm. I don't think it's necessary. for me. I don't think it's a an issue of like his range in this movie. I think it's the character for me. Yeah, I'm not 100 percent convinced one way or the other, but I, I lean a little bit more the other direction personally. Just that's mm-hmm. the that's just the vibe that I get. But, um, you know. He's still good. He was a good choice. Um, I, we have to talk about the facial prosthetics for Joseph Gordon-Levitt. I mean, it's pretty awesome. I try and I watched a featurette after the fact where they don't really show him getting. They talk about it, but they don't really show him getting the prosthetic. Is it the and one that's like to, five minutes long or something? Yeah, it's like it might be a little longer, and only a portion of it is about the makeup. But they don't even show it getting applied or anything. And I'm looking at him, trying to figure out like what is different here besides like it's like the eye color. But I don't know if it's like across his brow, his nose, under his under his nose. It seems like it, it's either a lot or it's a little. I can't really tell. I watched a little thing on YouTube um, that might actually be on the Blu-ray, but uh, I didn't I didn't check. And again, they don't show it being applied. But Joseph Gordon-Levitt essentially says, and you can see when you look at like side by side pictures of him online. So from a profile view. Joseph Gordon-Levitt has more of a straight nose. Uh, Bruce Willis has like a little hook at the end of his nose. Mm -hmm. So they like changed the profile of his nose. Bruce Willis, like the part of his nose, like that goes right up between his eyes is wider. So they widened that. They changed his eyebrow shape a little bit. And uh, they gave him something. I don't know how they did it, but to make it like the, the space between the bottom of his nose and his top lip like the filter area they somehow made that longer 
Mm-hmm. Those are like the yeah. main things they did. And it's not like a spot on likeness, but there's moments where you're like, man, that really does kind of look like him. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Definitely. Yeah, I just think it's awesome that they did it because, like, especially nowadays after stuff like The Irishman and Rogue One and, you know, all these other movies, it's like everybody's just so ready to willy-nilly just CG somebody or make them younger or whatever in a movie. I mean, the MCU does it all the time as well, actually, but... Right. But, yeah, just the fact that they dis- they made the decision we're going to go prosthetics and it was, like, three hours in a chair every day mm-hmm. for the entire movie for the main character to, like, just have yeah. a different face... I like that they did it. I think it was pretty successful. And um, oh yeah, I mean, in this case, when he's in so much of the movie, I think it's probably smart to have not done it with CG. I don't even know if that Just, was like an option for them at the time. It was ten years ago, right? I don't know what is involved for either application, computer, or practical. Like I don't know what goes into either of them, time wise or effort. But it just seems like it'd be easier to make a prosthetic. Yeah. You know? And it just looks, it's there. It's like, you know, it looks like him. It's just, I mean, Joseph Gordon-Levitt did say in the little interview thing that I watched that, uh, you know, it, it helped him, like, change into a different kind of character because, like, just looking different and feeling the physical feel of, like, the stuff on his face, it made him, like, conscious enough to, like, carry himself differently. And, mm-hmm. I mean, that's kind of interesting. I can sort of understand that. Yeah, yeah, I think that that plays a part or anything like in camera. It's like it's always better if you like working with an object rather than like a tennis ball or whatever. <laughs> Same kind of idea. Yeah, for sure. Um, I did some of that feature too. It said like you know they actually had like Bruce Willis and Emily Blunt like up on a crane like ab- above the uh, the cornfield and stuff. Like all that was actually mm. at the location. You know, and they add in the you know it's all like supplementing practical with cg like some of the most of the cg they actually had was like just backgrounds of uh you know cityscape futuristic Mm -hmm. cityscapes and stuff uh one thing that i like that you can tell is practical is in that scene you were talking about with uh, the gatman jesse in the house when all Mm -hmm. the stuff in the room starts floating you can tell that's all on wires Mm -hmm. and it's that thing i mentioned before about like does it look real not necessarily but you can tell it's literally real and that makes Mm -hmm. it okay to me versus like when they're outside in the cornfield and it like shows the close-up of the ground with like the little leaves and pieces of dirt floating like you can tell that's cg right but yeah the part in the house i love the fact that in defiance of it looking real they went ahead and did all that practically totally 100 percent. yeah i agree completely Ryan Johnson cites as inspiration for this movie The Terminator, which is unsurprising. Witness, which kind of makes sense, even though, you know, it's not sci-fi or anything. I don't know that one. The Harrison Ford movie, where um, mm. it's like, I, I've seen it before, I don't remember all the details, but it's basically like a uh, like big city person is uh, a witness to a crime, and so gets sent to like Amish country to hide out in the oh, country. God, no. Yeah. So that's kind of the feeling of, you know, going from the big city to the farm in this. Like, I kind of get that. Mm-hmm. Uh, Akira, mm, which, okay. you know, telekinetic kids. Similarly, sure. Domu, A Child's Dream, which is another, um, they did, they never made an anime, but it's a manga by Katsuhiro Otomo as well. Uh, Twelve Monkeys, which I thought was kind of interesting. Mm. And Time Crimes, which you and I are also yeah. fans of. Time Crimes is the jam. 
I thought this was interesting. So in the movie, Joe is learning French because when he's done being a looper, he wants to move to France. Mm-hmm. Uh, he wants to move to Paris. And uh, his boss, played by Jeff Daniels, is constantly telling him to uh, go to China instead. I love that line where he's like, I'm from the future. Go to China. <laughs> yeah, yeah, <laughs> totally. So originally in the script, Ryan Johnson did want the stuff where Joe moves to another country to be in Paris, but it was going to be too expensive. So they were considering uh, shooting New Orleans to stand in for Paris. And then the Chinese distributor came to them and offered to pay for location shoots if they would film in Shanghai instead. Oh, no way. So Ryan Johnson changed the script and had uh, Joe move there. And uh, I'd kind of like to see this. There's an extended version of the film that was released in China with more scenes in Shanghai. Oh, really? Yeah. Yeah, I'd watch that. This movie cost thirty million, so pretty much spot on with Twelve Monkeys, oh, and ended up making one hundred and seventy six point five mil. So pretty good. Always works for old Ryan Johnson. Yeah, and uh, this is an. I, I know we've talked about one or two of these before, but uh, Looper at the time in two thousand ten, the screenplay for this movie was featured on the blacklist. Oh, was it? Yeah, which is basically a list of scripts that have been making their way around Hollywood that have yet to be produced and uh, like it's voted on by different people in the industry as like which scripts are best that haven't been made yet. Like lots of buzz, but unmade. Yeah. On the list that year of note that did get made into movies later are Abraham Lincoln Vampire Hunter, which we've reviewed, Mm. Mm -hmm. Uh, Argo, Mm. Chronicle, which we've also reviewed, Edge of Tomorrow, Gangster Squad, the Vin Diesel movie, The Last Witch Hunter. Damn. <laughs> which, in my opinion, probably should have gone unproduced. <laughs> uh, Oz the Great and Powerful, also I would have not bothered with that one. <laughs> Stoker, Triple Nine, and What Happened to Monday. Okay. Which was a direct-to-Netflix movie that was quite good, I thought. Oh. I don't know that one either. Uh, put it on the list. I definitely think you'd like it. It's a kind of cool sci-fi movie. What's it called again? What Happened to Monday. Okay. (laughs) Uh, But yeah, so big fan of this movie. Big fan of Bruce and Joseph Gordon-Levitt and Emily Blunt and Jeff Daniels, who we hardly talked about. Yeah, it was great. Some great scenes with him. I just love the cast. I love the the world building in this. Mm Mm-hmm. You know, I love all the character interactions. Some, so, so many like little bits. The the diner scene, the Jeff Daniels scene when he's talking to Joe. It's you know when Joe like kind of warms up or warms up to Emily Blunt and the kid. Just and even like the end is heartbreaking when he offs himself. It happens so quickly, and you know he's about to. Do, it's just mm-hmm. there's no time to even like process that that's a thing, and then he just does it. Mm-hmm. Because, of course, you're like, you, you know, we're trained to be like, oh, look, they're, they're falling in love. He's going to grow old with her <laughs> and take care of the kid. But no, no. Here comes that, you know, then fucking Bruce Willis just disappears. It's, <laughs> yeah. Oh, it's like this movie runs you through the gamut. But, oh, God, do I love it. I like that lo-fi element of it, actually. Uh, the oh, fact God, that yeah. It's not like a giant glowing ball of electricity like in Terminator, mm-hmm. which I love in Terminator, but. Right, uh, I like that it's so simple in this. But you don't want to see you don't want to see it in everything. Yeah, people just appear and disappear. Yeah, they just appear. Someone appears screaming from the future, and you shoot them. <laughs> yeah, like it's such like a good like so the movie's so high concept and it delivers. Mm-hmm. 
And yeah, this was, uh, I was very excited at the time because I forget how I first saw Brick. I must have heard about it from someone or somewhere and rented it and loved it. And then I saw The Brothers Bloom, which I also like. And then this movie came out, and I just remember at the time being like, God damn, Ryan Johnson, three for three. Mm-hmm. This, like, I can't wait to see what he does next. And then, I mean, Star Wars The Last Jedi was next. And, uh, I don't know exactly where you fall on that one, but it kind of broke the streak for me. <laughs> I love that movie too. So, and then, uh, yeah. man, if he had just done Knives Out instead of Star Wars: The Last Jedi, uh, <laughs> I would have been uh, riding high uh, still, waiting to see what comes next. Well, in my in my eyes, he's got five heaters under his belt. So, hmm. I have uh, you know, we'll just have to put <laughs> Last Jedi on the list somewhere so we can talk about it. But four heaters, like a like a strong punch to the jaw, and. One heater, kind of like, uh, you know, you, you drop oh, a warm one on the sidewalk and it's like oh. steaming in the cold morning wow. morning air. I don't hate that movie that much. I just... I was going to say. Uh, yeah, just it's not on the same level as the others for me. Well, that's fair. That's your opinion. But Looper, it's good deal. shit right there. Agreed. Mm-hmm. Uh, shall we talk about some posters? Yeah, of course. So, again, 12 Monkeys, you have to watch that documentary feature, even if you yeah. just skip to the part about the posters. This is a cool poster. I love how weird it is with the uh, the red circle in Bruce's mm-hmm. eye there. But, uh, man, not to say that the other posters they showed in the documentary were better, but there were some wild fucking designs. I love this poster. Yeah. I think it's 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 weird, which is it should be because the movie's weird. I mean, it straddles the line of being that generic shit we hate, where it's just a bunch of the actors' faces photoshopped together. But it's also weird, so it's like it's like a compromise. We let right. them have what they want, like with mm-hmm. just like the actors' faces to go with the names. But then it's kind of weird looking. <laughs> like it's almost like we know at this point, especially you know mid nineties, like you know they're going to do this where they have to add in the actors' faces. Mm-hmm. So it's like, if you're going to do that, like, come correct with it. Give me something good. And this is, this delivers for that. It's a lot of black. You know, it's real moody. Mm-hmm. Think if, if if these faces were in color, it would not work nearly as good as it does. I mean, it's kind of interesting that even, you know, they have the three faces, but there's so little of the three faces that's not in shadow that yeah. you almost like, and I, I'm staring at it and it's kind of hard for me to tell that's Brad Pitt. Oh, for sure. Like if I didn't, if you didn't know that was Brad Pitt, I yeah. think many, many people would struggle to tell you who that was. Yeah, for sure. And I I, th- I think it's kind of interesting. This is another anecdote from that documentary that um, Brad Pitt hadn't become huge at the time yet because he had filmed Interview with the Vampire and Legends of the Fall. And I think there was a third movie that like he made that came out like they filmed 12 Monkeys. Those movies came out like before 12 Monkeys released, but after he was under contract to be in it. So they got him kind of cheap. And by the time 12 Monkeys came out, he was a huge star. And this was like Mm. the next movie to come out. So like, I'm not even 100% positive if he would have, you know, garnered being on the poster before he hit it big like that in the middle of production. Uh, Yeah, I know what you mean. Yeah, I think you're probably right. Because again, watching the movie, he's... Not in it a lot. If that movie's like a little over two hours long, I'd say Brad Pitt is in the movie for maybe like a fifth of the film at the most. Yeah. 
I th- and I could just remember this movie being huge at the time, and how much of that is like chalked up to him being in it could be uh, pretty high. Yeah, I'm sure it helped for sure being able to put mm-hmm. his face and name on the poster. But yeah, uh, I dig I dig this poster. Yeah, the future is history. Kind of a neat. I mean, that works. Yeah, yeah it's like a double entendre. Mm-hmm. No, I dig it. It's a great poster. Mm-hmm. I would hang this poster on my wall mm. in my movie room. Then we have the fifth element. Much like the movie, it's much brighter and colorful than uh, 12 Monkeys. It's a stinker. (laughs) Not a fan of this one? I mean, orange and blue always play. Like, that will always look good. But when it's just like, got rays of light, there's your, I guess, your five elements. Then those tiny heads at the top. It's just, you know, there's all the ships that I think you only see one of these ships. It's just, yeah. You see one, one time. <laughs> I mean, if you, you could just show the shot of Lilu jumping off the building with all the flying cars below, you know, like almost like just a, that shot from the movies, a better poster for the experience than this. I'm pretty sure that is the cover of the Blu-ray that I have. Oh, like that down right shot then. of her jumping off the building. I mean, that makes more sense to me for sure. Yeah, um, like you said, color palette's nice. I mean, it, it feels like they put it in space because it's like a futuristic movie that takes place partially in space. But the thing is, the majority of it takes place on Earth, like in that city. It definitely feels like it would have been better if they had shown off like the city, like the Earth yeah. location a little more. Yeah, like put a goofy one of the goofy aliens in the air, or, you know, like a proper Photoshop montage or something of all the different crazy elements, but... Yeah, maybe they were afraid of doing that too. Who knows? Like just instant at a glance, like the color scheme and everything is appealing to me. But like, if you watch the movie and you are a fan of the movie and you look at the poster, it does start to not Super make a lot of dull. sense. This this poster is so dull for how exciting that movie is. Yeah, it almost looks like this is a poster for uh, the fuck was that um, space movie with uh, Freddie Prince Jr. and Matthew Lillard? We watched uh, Wing Commander. <laughs> Wing Commander. Yeah. yeah. No, you're right. And then uh, Looper. I got to tell you. I don't even remember this. I, I'm I, Me neither. This is the main poster that's on IMDb. And it's the only one I could find that had uh, all of like the names at the bottom, which makes it feel like an official theatrical poster. Like mm-hmm. all the like, you know, in addition to the date, it's got like all the cast and everything at the bottom. There are other posters I recognize more. Is it ones where it's like top and bottom, like old Joe, young Joe? Yeah, it's almost like one's right side up and one's upside down, like a playing card, like a a face card. That's the one I remember more so, but again, I could not find a copy of that poster that had all the names and stuff, which I I don't know if that could be like a one-sheet kind of like teaser poster, and I'm just more familiar with it, but I went with this because it was the main one on IMDb, and it's the only one that had the cast. Like, even I'm more familiar with the Blu-ray box cover that's, like, all blue, and it's, like, Bruce and uh, Joseph Gordon-Levitt, like, kind of above a city-scape. Mm-hmm. Yes. But. No, I feel like this is the one you got to go with, because it's got the names. I mean, you're right, so. Yeah, it feels like the theatrical poster, even though I don't recognize mm-hmm. it a ton. I, he's got that blunderbuss. Yeah, he's got the blunderbuss. Uh, I, don't, I don't mind the look of the gun. It's just the name I'm not a fan of. <laughs> I don't really... I don't love this design here. Like, it's kind of an interesting look, but, I mean, it was a whole element with this poster. I feel like there's a design style where it's like you take a normal image, be it an illustration or a photo, and then you almost make it look like it's turning into smoke or turning into 
energy or like make it like look like it's turning into paint splatter. And I feel mm-hmm. like this is just like an aesthetic that a lot of people use in design these days. In this case, it's like he's turning into smoke. And mm-hmm. they used that on like a lot of the posters for this that I, it just doesn't feel like it applies to the movie. Like even as we were talking about a minute ago in Looper characters disappear. Right. But they just blink out of existence. They don't turn to wispy smoke. Like when people, you know, disappear from the snap yeah. in end game or something. I mean, something like this, I almost, cause it's like, it's hard to tell that you've got Joseph Gordon-Levitt like looking like with the prosthetics. I'd almost like do one of those like split face off looking posters <laughs> where like the two sides of the face would be almost better. Yeah. Yeah. This is, this is kind of dull to me too. And again, I might have stronger feelings if I'd seen it before, but I really don't feel like I'm familiar with this poster. Yeah. Nah, I'm not, but the best part is the, I guess the looper with the, and the first O was a clock. Mm-hmm. I like that too. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. Haunted by your future, haunted by your past. Not a bad tagline. Yeah. It works, but feel, the whole thing feels a little uninspired. Yeah. I agree. Millsy, break it down for the people. 12 Monkeys is going to get uh, five spiders uh, eaten by Bruce Willis in the Insane Asylum. Oh. <laughs> I do like this poster. It's simple, it's effective, it's eye grabbing. Yeah. Uh, it's not like a Drew Struzan painting or something, but it's, I don't know. This would be a tough movie to do a poster that like gets across the entire concept. Like that would be For near sure. impossible. So just being like intriguing and in the right tonal ballpark while being aesthetically pleasing, I think is a success. So I give it to 12 yeah. monkeys. The only thing I would maybe change about this mm-hmm. maybe was either just making the 12 monkey little logo on his eye maybe a little clearer or a little bigger. Mm-hmm. I'm not sure, but yeah, I, I love that, that it's there how it is. It's just, you know, because I like that little logo so much. But mm-hmm. It could just be this image. but Yeah. But I dig this one a lot. Oh, yeah. I'll give Fifth Element, I don't think it's the worst thing ever. If for no other reason, then it's got like appealing colors. <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, We've I'll, seen worse. Yeah. I will give this one... Um, Two of those crazy multifaceted guns that Zorg tries to sell to those oh. aliens. Very nice. Very nice. Wish those guns got a little more play in the movie because they were I fun. Know. Z, ZR1s or whatever. Yeah. Whatever they're called. Yeah, they were great. And then Looper, I don't know. I don't have super strong feelings about this one. I guess I'll just give it uh, three Gatmen. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> uh. Three gat men with a fart sound. <laughs> He's done it again. Good job, Millie. Here we go. <sighs> now comes the hard part. Look at this conundrum you put us in. I mean, I think I think I know. I think I know what I'm going to do. If you would like me to go first, uh, sure. <laughs> I don't know how the. I don't. I have no idea what you're about to pull. <laughs> I I don't even know if I have really good reasons for this. I'm just going with my gut here. Mm-hmm. Looper, as much as I hate to say it, is going to be my burn. And being the Bruce Willis episode, if there is any reason that I could pull out of my ass for this to be the case, it would be the fact that I think Bruce, he's he's not blowing me away in this one. I think he's good. I don't think he's great. I mean, there's more to it than that. It, the entire film doesn't hinge on Bruce Willis, but... Mm-hmm. 
there is a part of me that can't stop feeling that it's a little weird that the movie is like one thing for the first half and another thing for the second half. It almost feels like one begat the other, but they don't like mesh together super well somehow. Um, it almost feels like there's maybe a better way that they could have weaved the beginning into the end. I don't even know if that's true, but I'm I'm reach I'm grabbing at straws here. You're looking for a reason. I got you. Yeah, and you know, at the at the very least, you know, it's got like nice world building and everything we talked about. There's stuff that I dig, like the glass phone, but like there's not a lot of that stuff. And we get like the the one like motorcycle that hovers, like that's pretty cool. But if for no other reason than the other two have like incredible visual stuff to them that like super appeals to me, I think that this one visually to a slight degree and Bruce Willis wise <laughs> to a slight degree falls short of the other two. That's going to be the reasoning I give you and you're just going to have to deal with it. All right. When it comes to the other two, I love them both. I, I really legitimately love 12 Monkeys and I really love The Fifth Element. I mean, 12 Monkeys has the more dense storyline and stronger character stuff. The Fifth Element is just a goddamn visual marvel, and it is a blast to watch. So for no real reason aside from the fact that right in this very moment, I feel like if I was going to watch one of them again right now, I would be more in the mood to watch The Fifth Element. I'm going to go buy Fifth Element, borrow 12 Monkeys, and burn Looper. Well done, Millsy. That's that's all I got. <laughs> I'm, pr- I'm proud of you, champ. Uh, okay, my turn. Come out and say it. Fifth Element's one of my favorite movies of all time. That's my buy. Nice. It is a visual, emotional, action-packed tour de force. I love it. I can't say enough good things about it. Enough said. I said the whole episode. We've got five, uh, three five-star movies here. Twelve Monkeys and Looper, completely different movies style and tone and story but you know there's some connective tissue of the time traveling and and Bruce Willis so kind of like you kind of almost like struggle to decide like this is not easy this entire time I've just been thought like how that this is the probably the biggest instance of a movie like having three movies that I love dearly yeah this is the toughest one that it's like you know yeah Yeah. which of your children do you like more or whatever yeah and never if it wasn't for this podcast would we have a reason to have to choose so sure sure but we, <laughs> it's never something i ever thought about having to do yeah something we've done to ourselves I, i'm me Millsy, i'm going with my gut and i think just my kind of movie between the two is more looper looper is my borrow unfortunately i would burn 12 monkeys you're a get man I think just, it's kind of just, and it's kind of like you said, like, which one would I watch again right now? I would watch Looper. I mean, I think for all the things we've said, how they're they're both excellent. And I even might have, like, in my head, a not so much issue, but, you know, I, I bring up things more about Looper. But when it comes down to, like, that story, that world, those performances, like, that's what I want to watch more. Mm-hmm. As much as I still enjoy the shit out of all that in 12 Monkeys, i got to pick one over. So it's going to be Looper. Can't fault you. No, sir, you cannot. And I, the same for you. Tough decisions all around. Man. What a trifecta. It was, uh, it was a lot of fun revisiting that, Man. that uh, trio. Good time. I mean, it's, it's, it's fun going into three movies you love that you've already seen. So, <laughs> Yeah. Ugh. 
I just need, I don't own Fifth Element, and I wish there was a super, you know, three-disc edition of it, which apparently there is not, but... Not that I'm aware of. It does seem like the right kind of movie for someone like Arrow or Shout Factory to put out, but... Um... Just have to save my coinage to get a 500-something dollar art book on <laughs> the internet someday, I guess. And then I will uh, gladly come over and peruse it. <laughs> yes. I know that when The Fifth Element first came out on Blu-ray, it got a lot of flack for being like subpar video quality. Oh. And so it's one of the few instances of the studio actually remastered it did a whole new edition and like replaced discs for people and now the current blu-ray that you can get which is just like the quote-unquote standard version from uh whatever studio put it out is considered to be like a very good quality uh disc so um it's not to do that like a special fancy edition but it is like a worthwhile copy i guess yeah all right that's good to know uh, didn't really get around to digging through the special features on it this time, so... Well, eventually I'll get it, and I'll report back. All right. Uh, Party time. Yeah, time to find out what's coming next. Can we uh, get another perfect trio like that? Let's see. How many episodes we got, Milzos? 234 potential themes. 234. Here we go. 70. 70. Uh, all right. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I think it's safe to say that we do not have another perfect trio oh, on our boy. hands. Oh, this is oh. the universe punishing us for having such a good time. Man, this, this one's your fault, too. I, I love know. it. I came up with these. Oh, oh boy. All right. Uh, so the theme for next episode of the show is uh, 2000 A Space Odyssey. My man, Millsy. <laughs> man. I, we have no one to blame but ourselves. Hey, we, we, we brought this on ourselves and we're here for it. <laughs> I did buy one of these not terribly long ago on Blu-ray, so. Hey, me too. <laughs> That'll tell you something, but. Uh-huh. Whew. All right. Well, I'm ready. <laughs> uh, come back <laughs> next time. <laughs> Prepare yourselves. Yeah. Come back next time for Triple Threat Theater episode number 58, 2000 A Space Odyssey. Until then, this is Triple Threat Theater number 57, and I'm Ryan Miller. And I'm Joe Daxberger. Thanks for watching. That was one of the finest movies I've ever seen. They ought to make them all like that. None of this nonsense about social matters. People don't go to the movies to see how miserable the world is. They go there to eat popcorn and be happy. Be happy, happy, happy.